0: There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise, but even then there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain, but we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. <laughs> I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb.
1: And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting.
0: Today's episode is all about the first two episodes of The Rings of Power, titled A Shadow in the Past and Adrift. These shows debuted last night on Amazon, and we are recording early with very little sleep, so please excuse us. (laughs) Our spoiler warning will be, we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far of the Rings of Power, which would be the first two episodes, and we will also be discussing all the published Lord of the Rings materials as they may come up, be they Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries into the Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge for the end in a special spoiler section after a musical break if you want to remain curious about what may come next. Since this is our first *The Rings of Power episode and you may be jumping on for the very first time, I want to really quickly lay out this podcast and Patreon, patreon.com slash my cat, my pod. We are currently entirely listener supported, no ad breaks, and how far Emily and I can traverse Middle Earth depends on your support. <laughs> Ostensibly, this podcast covers Peter Jackson's Lord of the Ring films, one block of scenes at a time. It took us 20 or so episodes to complete Fellowship of the Ring, and likely will be even more for The Two Towers and Return of the King. We are halfway through The Two Towers film, which we have paused coverage on so we can focus on The Rings of Power. While we are here to celebrate the film's 20th anniversary, we use the movies as a springboard to talk about all things Tolkien, Middle-Earth, and Legendarium. Despite what they may say, Emily is one of the most knowledgeable, thoughtful, and absolutely singular voices in the Lord of the Rings community. Her takes come in hot and original, but most importantly, always make you think deeper about Tolkien's work and come away loving the Lord of the Rings even more. You will not find her specific kind of brilliance anywhere else, as perhaps you are finding Lord of the Rings podcast to pair with the Rings of Power. Oh, just recently, we launched a Patreon for this podcast found at patreon.com slash mybro, mycat, my pod, which comes with loads of bonuses. At any level, you get access to our Discord community server, where you can find me, Emily, and all our pals chatting daily about Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, The Rings of Power, Star Wars, Marvel, and whatever else is a pop culture going concern. At the higher levels, patrons will get early access to episodes. For our regular Lord of the Rings episodes, you get them a week in advance at the $5 and $10 levels. For our Rings of Power episodes, you will get them two days prior to the public, which will mean Monday for patrons and then Wednesdays to the public following Friday episodes. And at the $10 level, you will get a bonus episode every month starting in October. These bonus episodes will range from deeper dives into Middle Earth, to discussions about tangential stories and media, or just stuff we want to talk about, like say, and or the next Star Wars TV series coming soon. So our initial Patreon bonus episode schedule will be like this. In October, we are going to do a Meet Your Hosts episode, where we learn a little bit about each other through, hopefully, a fun format that will be determined. And then in November, we're going to do our first Tolkien-based episode. Emily, do you want to let the people know what that one will be about?
1: Yeah. um, I haven't had a chance to think about how to market this yet. So what we're hopefully going to be talking about, and I promise it won't be boring, is Tolkien's theory of history and how the way that Tolkien wrote about the stories that are in his stories really impacts the course of the stories. Now, how many times can I say story in one go?
0: It is a story about stories, so, you know. (laughs) We are, that podcast is going to be a story about stories about stories. Hey. So, Other bonuses include exclusive photos of my cats, opportunities <laughs> to ask the host questions on air, and even get special shout outs on air with a special Middle Earth name or title translated into one of the many languages, which I have to hand it to Emily. She's been handling most of that, and it's been wonderful. <laughs> Our initial shout outs are going to happen at the end of this episode. Once again, check out patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod. And apologies to my co- co-host, but real quick, this Patreon is also supporting the last dozen or so episodes I am doing about Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers, which means Podcast Without Borders in French, because we're fancy. <laughs> uh, we are currently wrapping up the saga with MGSV over there, so if you have any interest in Metal Gear Solid, I would urge you to check out that pod and consider supporting us for our last bunch of episodes. And with all that out of the way, let's talk about the first two episodes of The Rings of Power. Emily, what did you think?
1: (laughs) Um, yeah, well, uh, (laughs) I don't really have an opinion. Uh, like, I mean, I do have an opinion and my opinion is who cares? Um, I think this is fundamentally going to be and you know what, now that I'm saying this, I realize there are a whole bunch of people who said this right when Game of Thrones came out uh, and who got laughed at for years. But like, I think the series is going to be really easy to ignore. I think it bears virtually no relationship to the source material. And it's neither good fun nor bad fun enough to merit a rewatch. So I'm kind of going at this in the same way that I went at like, the book of Boba Fett, which is that it's definitely a thing that is happening. And that's, uh, to Forrest Gump voice this, that's all I have to say on that really. Um, and for most people who are familiar with this podcast, I think this might be a slight kind of, uh, uh kind of like task, a very difficult task here, which is me convincing everybody that I'm not actually mad about this show. Um, this show has so far not evoked a single emotion beyond kind of like mild amusement. Um, and I spent most of the first two episodes just like thinking about other things like what I wanted to make for dinner, uh, which is a slow cooker, beef bourguignon and, uh, apple and cinnamon cake for anybody interested. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of wet farting noise from me really, which is not different from usual, but yes.
0: <laughs> oh. oh man. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I'm just kind of mad that you used the word wet fart because there was a very specific character I was going to use that in regards (laughs) to later in our discussion. Um, So um, anyone who's familiar with our podcast may know that I tend to be a little more optimistic than Emily (laughs) when it comes to a lot of things. Um, What I will say about the first two episodes is I did like it. I liked it. I did not, like, love it. Um, But I think there was just enough there for me to seize onto to want to be interested In the rest of the series. If for no other reason than as a curiosity. Um, Kind of how you were talking about Game of Thrones. um, I kind of feel that way about the ending of Game of Thrones. Like I know it's like so divorced from the source material. That I just don't let it bother me. I don't think you can ignore it. Because someone always wants to relitigate the end of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. In my circles. But like for the most part. I've always been okay with deviating far enough from the source text that, you know, I can treat them as two wholly different entities. Um, So, you know, in the worst case scenario, we can just approach this as a fantasy show and how it works like that. And then we can come back and later on is like, did this have to be in Middle-earth? Did this have to be, you know, any millions of things that are going to end up going into this show? Um, In terms of like, Because I mentioned on our preview episode that I'll be more worried about visuals and how it works in terms of the mode of TV storytelling and less so with the adaptation of Tolkien's work. Um, I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it looked expensive, but not always good, which yeah. might sound like a weird thing to say. Um, I think there were parts of it that legitimately looked breathtaking. Um Parts of it that I'm like, that's actually inspired. And there are parts of that is like, well, that looks like Uncharted 3. Um, So it's (laughs) like, it's hard to like have a good grasp on it. And I know they're trying to show off that budget in the pilot, especially just to be like, oh, look at this. Look at all the stuff we can do. And about half the things I was impressed by in terms of the things they wanted me to be impressed by. As for the cast... Or go ahead, go ahead.
1: Well, no, I was just going to say, I think that's basically right, but it's funny that you mentioned the 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 pilot as the one that where they were really showing off the budget because I think that's true, but I also think it was really ugly. Um, like it had that kind of sheen that like, you know, they may have accidentally smeared Vaseline on every single camera they used, kind of sheen that you get. I think, especially in the Marvel movies, where they're over relying on a uh, kind of shoddy CG. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily the sin of the pilot, but there was just something like they'd clocked the vibrancy slider up too high, and everything was a bit kind of sheeny. And if it was a stylistic choice. Then it was a bit weird to me that it didn't carry on into the second one. And I think the second one for getting that kind of nicer sense of clarity and there wasn't so much of that kind of weird muddiness in the background, like that one was the one where I was like, yeah, okay, this is definitely expensive.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think we'll, we'll dive into the episode here briefly, but I think like the Elvish aesthetics is really kind of where I was not really a fan of how this show looked. Mm. And that's just a little bit worrying for me because this is going to be a very elf driven show. There is an elf and, I think, every storyline except for the one with the Harfoots. So I'm just a little bit worried about that. I'm a little worried about their haircuts. um, (laughs) I'm a little worried about their armor. And these are very minor things. I think ultimately my opinions on these episodes are going to be thematic and character work, um, which we'll also get into shortly. Um, And those I felt were mostly good. Um, I don't think there was anyone that really stood out in terms of a well-realized character. I think there's some really great performances. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much any of the characters right now are clicking. Although I am going to say this, and I apologize to Emily, I am a big fan of everything happening with the Harfoots right now. I think that was (laughs) the part that worked for me the most. Um, I think musically that worked the most, aesthetically that worked the most. And I think I actually got more of a sense of the characters of like Nori and even her friend Poppy than I did some of the other characters in the first two episodes, at least. Yeah,
1: no, I totally agree with you there. And actually, I think the, the fact that I ended up liking not liking but sort of being okay with the the kind of harfoot stuff as much as I was um was kind of like that psych- psychological breaking point not to be incredibly melodramatic about this but it was that kind of moment for me where I was like um to to really clumsily borrow from Shakespeare but like you know if a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet then this is a rose that's actually like a lily which is to say that like You know, roses, like lilies don't smell less sweet than roses, but they smell differently to roses. And I think it's wrong to call a lily a rose. (laughs) You should call a lily a lily, but don't market the lily as a rose. And I think what we've gotten is a lily marketed as a rose. Um, And so I like lilies, they're my favorite flowers, but I was expecting a rose. uh, And this isn't that. Um, I don't really mind it so much. Um, I think the show is kind of boring, but inoffensively boring. Um, And it, to me, really bears kind of almost no relationship to. The Tolkien universe and the Tolkien characters that I love. These are all characters that have the names of the characters that I love, but almost have no real sort of resemblance to those characters. So it's kind of easy for me to go, yeah, fair enough, um, fair enough. Like whoever these guys are, whatever their like lawyer background is, cool. Um, it's definitely not the Gladriel that I know, and it's definitely not the Elrond that I know and have read about. Uh, and that that kind of makes it fine for me. And I think that's almost why the Harfoot. Plot is so much more successful because there is no like lore baggage there. Um, nobody is going into that expecting that the hobbits are going to have these like incredibly intense and deeply intimate and emotionally fraught relationships with each other. You can take it exactly as what you're shown. Whereas with the Elrond stuff, with the Gladriel stuff, with the Celebrimber stuff, there's literally a hundred years or so of lore in the real world sitting behind these characters. More than a hundred years, one hundred and four um, sitting behind these characters, and it's harder. To to kind of break that apart. Um, So as much as I was expecting to be kind of indignant about the Hobbits, I'm actually like, yeah, fine, whatever, let it happen.
0: Um, So, and I think the Hobbits are an interesting thing for me. Uh, Anyone who hasn't been listening to our podcast, I am definitely the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings fan. That's how I came into it. And that's still kind of where I go to in terms of Lord of the Rings. Uh, The Hobbit, like if you ask me, like who's your favorite Person from the Lord of the Rings movies, I'm going to jump to like Legolas or Aomer, you know, like just kind of like warriors because I was just an action bro growing up. But then every time I watch the movies, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the Hobbit parts that move <laughs> me or actually like emotionally get me through this and make me cry like a little baby. Um, so I I kind of have a feeling that that's kind of what's happening here, um, that that's going to be a part that I fall back on, uh, maybe unexpectedly so, but while we're kind of on the topic, um, I know you've mentioned um, how you feel in terms of the rift between Tolkien's *Legendarium* and the show so far. How do you feel it compares to Peter Jackson's films, both aesthetically and tonally?
1: Ah, uh, this is interesting. So, I, I think this is kind of the point at which this is this becomes like a series of unfortunate cell phones, um, because I think they elected to make this really a follow on a. Follow-on, a, a a copyright agnostic sequel or prequel rather to peter jackson's lord of the rings um and i think visually aesthetically everything about this mirrors peter jackson's lord of the rings it's almost sort of fan filmy in a lot of ways um and i think the the kind of frustrating thing for me, and, and I think I even said this in our very first episode about the Rings of Power back in January, was that um, if they went for the Peter Jackson aesthetic and if they were looking to ape the Peter Jackson aesthetic instead of beating their own path and 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 going for something more unique, they were going to fail. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happened here is that like because unfortunately the only thing I can do when they presented me with a world that looks almost like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings vision. I sit there and I go, well, it's not Peter Jackson, is it? Um, And one of the reviews I was reading, actually, um, it may have been Entertainment Weekly, was basically like, the reason that this series doesn't work so far is that why would you sit here and watch... 10 hours of mediocre TV that everybody feels a bit ethically dubious about because it's Amazon and Jeff Bezos when you could instead go watch uh, nine hours of the Peter Jackson films and get a a far more coherent story and not have to feel as icky and gross about about Amazon's involvement um, to say, you know, to kind of uh casually brush aside the the labor issues with peter jackson's films and that that to me is kind of like where i'm at with this which is like i love peter jackson's films why would i watch these tv show this tv show that is trying to be peter jackson's films when i could just go watch the og and have more fun
0: yeah no i think that's a very fair take um i will say as one of the peter jackson film sickos um I think it just mostly felt coherent to that, but I do agree with you. It doesn't feel anywhere as inspired. Um, And some of that is, A, because Jackson was doing it. I don't want to call it first, because obviously there were adaptations before him and plenty of people criticized his adaptations of simplifying uh, Tolkien's Legendarium. But like they were just doing a lot of stuff that he kind of laid out, so they weren't building it from scratch. Um, And it's also the fact that Peter Jackson was doing this at a time, where not everything you could imagine can be created in a computer and you can yeah. just shoot it. Um, he actually had to work at creating some of these landscapes, these vistas, some of these monuments or structures. And what I keep saying Peter Jackson. I hope everyone understands. I mean, the whole production team. Um, but, like, there's amount of effort that went into it where even if this is a very similar visual experience, I just know the amount of craftsmanship that went into it is a lot lesser Mm -hmm. and that doesn't make it worse but it just doesn't, like, you know, inspire me the way that Jackson's films do because not only do I find them just inspirational narratively, I find them actually inspirational as a production of three films. Um and that is part of the magic. That is why I keep saying the Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite pieces of art ever is because the creation of it is just as valuable as the final product and I definitely don't feel that here especially with the fact that Amazon kind of went around this with, like, a backwards production cycle. Like, they knew what they wanted, and they just basically shelled out as much money until they got something close to what Jeff Bezos imagined, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually think this is a really good point, right? Because I think, like— um if we do something, which I think is probably bad, bad praxis, but but I would like to try anyways. If we imagine that the stories told in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings and in the Hobbit are stories that actually happened, which they're not, they're obviously fiction, and um, and then we take J.R.R. Tolkien's writing of these books as a as an adaptation and of those stories, and and Peter Jackson's films as an adaptation of those stories, there's a clear thumbprint left on those stories by each of those interpreters. So, you know, in in J.R.R. Tolkien's books, you you get very clearly this sense of, of of his background in philology and and linguistics and you get very clearly uh, a a read on his, you know, his devout catholicism and his experience in the trenches in World War II and his living and writing through uh or sorry, trenches in World War 1, experience living and writing through World War II. And then in Peter Jackson's adaptations, you can touch, practically touch the 1990s in it, and you can see his background as a horror filmmaker. And that comes through really clearly. And I and, and the sense that I'm getting, and it also comes through really clearly right from the start, um, in in both uh cases, in both J.R. Tolkien's writing and, and Peter Jackson's uh, uh filmmaking. Um and and this feels incredibly impersonal to the point where I don't think the director matters. I don't think you know, we'll we'll probably disagree on this, but I don't think the composer for the score really matters. I don't think any of the costumers, like, you know, who they are and their backgrounds, I don't think it really matters because it all feels a bit kind of computer generated and not like in a dunk on CG. It feels like they fed it into like a hyper-advanced version of Dali 2 or whatever, and this is what they got Mm -hmm. out. And there's no (laughs) sense of like personal kind of um, ownership or influence on this. I can't look at this and say, oh, well, in this, this, and this, creative choice. You can see this particular background or career experience of this person. It's just, this is a script that has been as quote unquote, objectively translated onto a screen as humanly possible with almost no stylization or kind of unique touches.
0: No, that's, I I think that's absolutely fair. And I think at this point, um, I think you guys kind of have a feel for how we're feeling about this overall. Um, Why don't we just kind of start working through the episode and then we'll just kind of see what comes from there. Um, Probably best to kind of do this by chunks. Um, So let's, let's start where the story starts Galadriel, which we actually get a Galadriel prologue here, just like we do to open the Peter Jackson films, (laughs) which I feel is kind of nice. I mean, I don't, I don't feel strongly about it one way or another, but it is at least, you know, of a piece if nothing else. Uh, But I mean, the first thing that stuck out to me, because we get a young Galadriel here, um, and then we get to meet her older brother, um, I assume older, (laughs) uh, Finrod, who has a Killian Murphy haircut. I I don't really (laughs) know. Like, I mean, I see this haircut all the time because, you know, I live in Boys Town and I have short hair myself. I just, I'm not entirely sure about Finrod's hair. But that aside, um, what did you think about this opening scene? Because I actually enjoyed the little, like, Paper Swan that she made. Um, I thought that was a nice little visual touch. Uh, um,
1: yes. Go. Good. Uh, it, so good. So interesting. So I, I, I could take or leave this. I don't really care uh, about it at all. It did not evoke a single emotion in me besides, oh, God, how many minutes are left of this TV show. Um, the swan the paper swan is a swan boat. Um, it's a swan ship. Uh, and this is a little, one of these fucking little, uh, Easter egg winks to the lore. Uh, the swan ships are the ships that the Fainorians, uh, they were built by the Teleri who are the elves who live along the coast in Amman, which is Valinor, uh, and the undying lands. Uh, and they are the ships that the Fainorians burned, uh, well, stole, <laughs> sacked, uh, sacked the city of the Teleri, sacked Syrian, and then stole and sailed to Middle Earth, and then burned, uh, thereby pre- preventing Galadriel, uh, Galadriel Galadriel's her family and all of their people from crossing over from uh, Valinor to Middle Earth by sea, and instead forcing them to go via the Helcaraxa, which is literally an icy hell. Uh, I don't know that this is going to have necessarily any bearing on the show itself, but it's that is like a very direct reference there. Um, given that I saw that and I went, okay, all right, that's the reference. Uh, that's it. Um, I thought the thing where she's kind of getting bullied by all of the other people was really interesting because by all, uh, extents or by, by kind of all reckoning in the, in, in the Silmarillion and in various other auxiliary descriptions of Gladriel, she's kind of a non-entity as a child. She's like neither the one who is like kind of picked out and bullied nor is she like you know one who's hanging out with the gang she is like raised among a generation of people who even elves who even in childhood were far more interesting than her so like kind of singling her out as like the bullied character is certainly a choice it's not i would say in line with galadriel's character in the Silmarillion or in the lord of the rings but as i said at the top here i don't really think they're trying to do galadriel in canon i think they're doing new galadriel
0: I was about to say, um, I thought you would like that part because I figured the people bullying Galadriel would be like a self-insert character for you. Like that would (laughs) be you if you were (laughs) writing your own script here. Um, I I guess the other thing I I just realized now while you were talking about it was we do see um, a swan boat in Lothlorien in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Uh, Very briefly um, in the books, I believe Galadriel and Celeborn come out and meet the Fellowship as they're about to, uh, what's it called? you know, drift down the great river and continue their journey, but they come out on their big swan boat so they can have 11 Z's before they head out. So, um, I just pinged that as a thing as you were speaking about that. Um, anything you want to say about Finrod because we get, well, I know you have a lot to say about Finrod, but do anything you want to say about here before we start getting to see the trees and the kind of setting up of the story that we're going to be told.
1: Yeah. I hate his Mormon missionary haircut. (laughs) <laughs> that's it. Uh he's boring to me. Um to be fair, I, I like I kind of like Finrod in the Silmarillion. Like I think he's an interesting character. He's he is the character who first uh makes contact with the the men. So Finrod is kind of like the first bridge between the men and the elves, and that's important. And and he is a kind of interesting guy, all things considered. But for the most part, he's never really as interesting to me as all the other elves that are kicking about the Silmarillion. So like him showing up here is kind of like Cool. That's great. Giving him a Mormon missionary haircut is unforgivable.
0: (laughs) That leads us into uh, essentially like the bigger prologue where we start really, you know, hop, skipping and jumping through time. Um, I did like the shot of the trees burning. Um, I, yeah, it I won't say it like looked great, but I just think it was evocative. <laughs> Again, like I said, it looks expensive but doesn't always look good to me. Yeah. Um, but I like I like it just as like a visual marker and like kind of setting up the story and transitioning it away into the broader prologue. We get Finnrod fighting in a bigger, you know, Orc army skirmish battle. Um, and it kind of all is basically um it's I think we see the oath of feanor in there because i think we see all the people drawing swords um maybe i'm wrong or misinterpreting about that um and then from anytime i say anything like that please note i learned this from emily so (laughs) um just know if i get anything wrong it's because i wasn't listening to her well enough oh wait actually
1: sorry can i jump in here to be a total freak and yes So the Oath of Feanor bit uh, looks to be almost directly inspired by art by Jenny Dolphin, who is Gold7 on WordPress.com. She's a brilliant artist based in Germany. Um, Just If you want any art related to the Silmarillion or the Elves, her art should be your first kind of stop for this. Uh, The one thing that did make me laugh where I was like, okay, maybe they do have to hold copyright is they're doing this circle shot of all of the Fedorians, the seven sons of Faenor, uh, and they don't show a red-headed son which is Mithras, uh, whose quenya name is Rasandal, which means copper top, and it's of course also a, a reference to the, the copper circlet he wears on his head, but he has red hair. And I was like, wow, uh, that is one thing that is definitely not mentioned in the appendices that is mentioned in the, in the Silmarillion. So maybe they are having to keep to copyright. Um, that is something nobody should have ever picked out, but there it is. Uh, that's the where my brain is at right now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, just two observations that are kind of tangential based on this. A, it looks like almost all the preview footage or trailer footage we've got came from these first two episodes. There's a couple of stuff like Numenor that is going to be like episode three, but it looks like a lot of stuff that we thought might be major moments as they were shown to us in the trailer were just really quick hits here. My second kind of like... Brainworm idea is that I wonder if there's like a fair use policy for the film stuff like they can show it but only for 30 seconds it's uh-huh. kind of like how we can put in like you know a Taylor Swift song into our podcast but we can only do up to 30 seconds and then anything after that like goes beyond fair use <laughs> so I wonder if there's like they can touch on it and mention it but they can't actually like linger on it kind of stuff I don't really know how any of this works, and I'm not going to bother to learn at this point. Um, But it it was just kind of something I was thinking is like, this is obviously just a little bit broader than just the appendices from the Lord of the Rings. So I think that gets us to essentially what we saw is like this big war between Morgoth and the elves. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, maybe Emily, do you want to explain this so I don't goof it up?
1: I mean, no, I mean, it is literally that. Uh, it is it is a war between Morgoth and the elves. Morgoth steals the Silmarils, which are these jewels, three jewels crafted by Feanor. They contain within them the light of the two trees of Valinor. Uh, Feanor, for various reasons, has some problems. There is an attempt to reconcile his problems with his stepbrother during uh, this attempted reconciliation. Uh, Morgoth sneaks into Valinor, uh, or uses Ungoliant, which is Shelob's ancestor, to sneak into Valinor, fuck over the trees, kill Feanor's father, and st- steal the Silmarils. Silmarils. Uh, this kicks off this massive war that gets loads and loads and loads of people killed including but not limited to Feanor himself haha <laughs> what massive cell phone uh, and then uh, <laughs> the uh, exile of crucially the exile of the Noldor uh, and so uh, the Valar who are like these demigods who who basically lord over uh, Middle Earth uh, well all of it Arda uh, say uh, don't go after the fucking Silmarils That's stupid you can't leave uh, Amon Valinor uh, and Fanor says, no, uh, I'm going. Uh, he um, he swears an oath along with his seven sons to leave and go seek out the Silmarils and, and steal them back from Morgoth. Uh, and alongside this... Uh, Basically, Feanor's extended family, which includes the family of Fingolfin, who is his half-brother, and uh, the family family of Finarfin, but not Finarfin himself, which includes Galadriel and her brother Finrod. Uh, they all go across, uh, by various means, whether through the Swan Boats or whether through uh, the Helcarax of the Icy Hell Pass, um, to uh, Middle-earth. Uh, this makes the Valar very, very mad, and they say... Because you've done this, you now can't come back to Valinor. Uh, and this is a huge problem for all the elves because they would quite like to be in the Undying Lands, uh, which is like essentially paradise. Uh, lots of stuff happens. Uh, there's a whole bunch of fighting, a whole bunch of people die. It's really grim. Uh, Beleriand, which is the uh, westernmost part of Middle Earth, is sunk beneath the waves. Uh, and we are kind of picking up the pieces of that when we start our show here.
0: Yeah, right. There was that very arresting shot in the trailers of, like, towers on fire and people drowned and everything red, and that appears to be just something that occurred during the war with Morgoth. Is that, what is it, the War of Wrath or the Tempest of Fire? Was that what they were trying to depict there?
1: Yeah, I still don't know. I think it may okay. have been this act of Syrian.
0: <laughs> okay, no, that's fair. Um, anyways, let's just say... So after this kind of, like, big prologue that spans this massive war, we see at the end of it that Finrod died. Um, and we see Galadriel grieving over his dead body. We see that Finrod's body was all marked up with scars, including this symbol, which appears to be a symbol for Sauron. Um, it looks, like, kind of like an eye, basically like a square with, like, a line through it. If that, Does that sound about
1: right to you? Yep, that is correct.
0: Um, and then is this how Finrod died in...
1: Uh, The legendary, yeah, more or less. Uh, There's nothing about a weird symbol on him. He just dies, and they put him in a in a kind of high burial place as a reminder of all of the good that he's done. Um, The 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 crucial thing about Finrod's death that I find really interesting here. um, Well, first off, Galadriel has two other brothers uh, who also die uh, during this and just get no recognition, which is dead funny. Uh, But um, Finrod's death is one of many deaths, um, and uh, pretty much every single elf who lived through the First Age had a, an enormous amount of their family wiped out um, and there was in some ways almost no special deaths there were there were no kind of unique deaths um except for you might say uh perhaps Fingolfin uh or or fingon even um so the way that they're kind of playing up Vinrod's death, I get it. I get it because they're centering Galadriel, but like, it's also a bit funny because this is not really how it played. The The death and destruction uh, during this war was so immense and so widespread that nobody really sticks out from the pack like this.
0: So all that said and done, and it looks like Galadriel's like, cause celeb following all this is to finish what her brother set out to do um, because she does not believe that Sauron or whatever you want to call it, the remnant of Morgoth, has been completely, like, extinguished. Um, So that puts us in media res with her and her company. Uh, She's called Commander Galadriel, which, well, I'm sure, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But uh, this takes us into the the four-road wave. Um, And uh, before we actually talk about that, I do want to talk about something I did like in this episode, or the set of episodes, is some of the visual transitions and them using the maps Um, It was a little bit disorienting because they didn't really keep like a cardinal direction. Like North is going (laughs) to be the upper part of your screen or not. Um, But I did like that. They were trying to both use the maps and use them a little bit differently than um, the Lord of the Rings movies did. Uh, I I think it just helps because a lot of these locations are not things that we really saw a lot in Peter Jackson's films. Um, So some of them might not be locations that you're able to really situate yourself in, which I think the show is actually playing with, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we get to uh, tier Harad and all that stuff
1: yeah um i i maybe this is something that is just because i'm absolutely drained at this point but um it did make me laugh to see how they changed the map to look more game of thrones like and less like the tolkien hand-drawn maps that they use in the peter jackson films and like lighting up the places in gold i was like this is such like a minor thing but it's so indicative of everything about this like show where like the actual thing that exists in the text that has been perfectly serviceable to millions of fans tens of millions of fans for like a hundred years now well 70 years now uh, is insufficient here and what we have to do to make this more exciting to people is to add a slightly brighter gold color to it and like obviously that's minor in the course of things but i'm like this is just such a specific like capital m mindset going on right now yeah to me
0: it felt like a, a mashup between some of the game of thrones opening map credits and a little bit of indiana jones because they yeah. showed a little bit of like the trailer um i i mean it, Obviously, I clearly like it a little bit more than you, but um, I'm just more into having more visual flair um, into shows in generally, and I feel like this was a nice touch. But yeah. let's let's talk about what actually happens at the Forward Waste, uh, which is a northern mountain range, or is it like the uttermost north of Middle Earth? Does yeah, that it's just the right?
1: Northern Waste.
0: Yeah, beyond the wall, because essentially they climbed the wall uh, to open this. And this is one of the parts where I thought the game looked, or the game, (laughs) uh, the the show looked a little bit video gamey to me, or like I said, Uncharted 3. Um, I did not like how the ice mountains were rendered here. Um, But then uh, they're climbing this mountain, they get to the top, and it appears that all of Galadriel's uh, followers, they're like... Ready to go back home. They think Sauron or the remnants of Morgoth are no longer around, that they've accomplished their mission. They've already surpassed um, the edict that was given to them by Gilgalad, and everyone just kind of wants to get home and get on with it. And we are led to believe that they have been doing this for centuries, which they kind of tried to show to us through like a montage of Galadriel's company traveling over the many lands of Middle-earth. Um, any thoughts on this before we get into the castle or dungeon that they discover?
1: Um, not really. It's boring. I don't like, it's just boring. I don't think it has the kind of punchiness to it that they wanted. Um, and I also think it's fine to have Gladrio be out and about like she is, but it's also just. I don't know. It just, it sat a bit weird to me. I'm like, why is she only leading like four people? This is all very strange. What it is, is obviously cribbing from, like you say, from beyond the wall, all of that stuff beyond the wall in Game of Thrones. It's trying to make her Jon Snowy in a way. And I'm just like, Who cares? Who cares? It happened. They put it on screen. Jeff Bezos makes way more money than I do. So who cares what my opinion on
0: it is? (laughs) We're off to a rocking start here. Our coverage of the Rings of Power. (laughs) Uh, So this takes us into um, essentially a dungeon from The Legend of Zelda, um, where the company is basically slinking about. They find... Um, A secret door that, you know, in Zelda, you usually do it by pushing a block or statue you didn't realize was there. Here it was an ice wall you had to cut through. And then we find what looks to be some kind of ancient forge of the orcs or some dark forces. Um, There's this really gnarly orc skeleton that's like embedded into the wall that reminds me a lot of Annihilation, um, if anyone has seen that Natalie Portman movie. (laughs) Um, But then um, I think they discover um, the Sauron symbol yet again on... Um, like the anvil essentially that would be for the forge and mm-hmm. uh, both Galadriel and her lieutenant basically say that some other darker power was at work here. Cause something like even beyond just the evilness of the orcs, they say something about like the unseen powers. Is that a thing or is that just a show flourish?
1: It's a show flourish. And it also includes one of the funniest interactions I've heard so far in this. And I think kind of speaks to the inability. So I, I know a lot of people are quite up on the script. I think the script is like, inexorably dog shit and kind of embarrassing um but there's this conversation where they're trying to show that galadriel is really wise and, and and clued into the world and uh her i guess it is her her lieutenant is like uh oh i'm really cold uh and uh and, and galadriel goes uh there's something there's an evil so great here that it makes even the flames of our torches cold uh and the guy goes well how do you know that that's true and galadriel effectively goes I know it's cold because it's cold and they don't mean it like that. They obviously don't mean her to just say a fucking tautology like that, but because I don't think they have a grasp on the like prose and and the sort of cadence of Tolkien's writing and don't really know how to make someone look smart, they end up just writing insane shit like Galadriel being like nodding sagely cold things are cold, and we're kind of just meant to go with it. And like, that was the moment where like five minutes in, I was like, okay, this has set the tone. We're just gonna have to kind of turn brain off from here on out. All
0: right. Um, I do want to l- launch one defense of a person behind the scenes. Um, the writer on at least the first episode is Jennifer Hutchinson. And she is a regular writer on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and she has written incredible, incredible stuff. So um, I'm going to prevent she had no hand in those lines, but they were a bit <laughs> clunky. Um, I will say broadly the script, there were parts that I, I was legitimately moved by, which I will talk about when we get to them, but there were parts that just felt, eh, this, if not like they just didn't feel like they belonged in middle earth like some of the lines were a little bit like oh this is 2022 talk in our real world yeah. um which is always something that kind of throws me out. it's it's a weird hang up i have about a lot of stuff like there's stuff in star wars where i'm like they wouldn't talk like this <laughs> you know yeah. it's more like us it it, it they're trying to they're trying to like MCU-ify it and like everyone talks like us. No, um, I I, I think bit. that's
1: not a weird hang up. And I and I actually like I I I, I want to defend defend you from yourself on this right here because I, I don't think it's a weird hang up. And I also think it's actually really crucial to understanding Tolkien and his body of work. And I say this because in his essay um translating on translating Beowulf, he actually talks about the importance of using the 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 language and and, and the the way people talk, um, obviously because he is a philologist. But but using this sort of ancientry of tone and archaicness of vocabulary choice as a way to set the tone. And then he says, you know, you should not wholly translate Beowulf into perfectly modern terminology, because then you are losing something absolutely crucial to what Beowulf is and was, and given that Beowulf was written in language that would have sounded archaic when it was written. Um, and this is something he carries through in all of his writing. And he's always trying to sort of emulate this kind of high medieval, well, high medieval-ish style of prose, except for when he's not. And even that's done pointedly. And kind of carelessly taking this 2020 vernacular in to this show is a problem. Like there's a scene later, I think in episode two, where, where someone literally screams, hey, and I'm like, I'm going to get mocked and called a, a bitch for like thinking that that sounds like shit, but it does sound like shit and it's lazy writing. And like for a a, a creative team that have spent so much of the press being like, we are trying to follow Tolkien either to the letter of the lore or thematically to, to, to fuck up something as instrumental to who Tolkien is and what his writing was about is a bit kind of annoying.
0: Yeah, no, no disagreement there. Um, one last thing, uh, based on what you said a little bit of ago, um, the fire not feeling warm is something that will come back later on in the episode when uh, Nori the hardfoot discovers a stranger as well. So um, I forgot that uh, Galadriel and her lieutenant basically had the same idea about uh, the fire not actually being hot. So I, g- I guess that's foreshadowing or <laughs> some kind of symbolic connection. Anyways, um, they find this forge, they find the Sauron symbol, and um, I do want to talk about the Sauron symbol real quick, um, because I read kind of a fun theory, maybe it's not fun from your point of view, Emily, but, um, so first of all, the symbol, A, if anyone's seen the kinda bad prequel Red Dragon, it's a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, Um, Hmm. the symbol looks almost exactly like the one... uh, the Tooth Fairy, which is a serial killer in that movie, uh, was yeah. leaving, um, which just it, it just kind of it, I wouldn't say took me out, but I'm like, it's basically the same symbol, isn't it? <laughs> um, anyways, forgetting that um, some people have uh, theorized that perhaps it is a map of Mordor or so. Um, because I guess if you turn the symbol on its side, um, Mm -hmm. it kind of outlines the mountain ranges that enclose Mordor, and then the line goes right through where uh, Mount Doom and uh, Barad-Dur would be. Um, I don't love that interpretation of it, more so that I like it as a map in the way that it's like leading perhaps orcs or other dark forces to go to the east and into Mordor. I'm thinking like signs from signs, um, how they talked about the crop signs being like navigation points to help get people where they need to go. Um, If it's something like that, I think that's kind of cool. Um, I like that a little better than these are Sauron's like calling cards like, oh, I was here, so I'm going to leave a card. He's not like the Joker leaving a Joker card everywhere that he (laughs) shows up kind of thing. Um, But if it is a way like, you know, my folk, you need to gather here and, you know, sometime in the near future, I could kind of get behind that.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm now imagining, now that you said calling card, uh, you know, the the guy, the Charlie Don't Surf guy in an apocalypse now, (laughs) when he's leaving the death cards, I'm imagining Sauron shirtless with like a 10 gallon hat being like, fucking, I don't know, the elderly uh, Don't Surf. (laughs) Uh,
0: I love the smell of, I don't know what's a good, (laughs) (laughs) fuck, Uh. Balrog flame. Yeah, in the morning. Okay, belrog that's the <laughs> Napalm equivalent in Middle-earth. Okay, I, I think we if nothing else, we got that out from this episode. So um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. There is a cave troll fight here or snow troll fight, which this is the first part I clocked where, oh, they are really missing Peter Jackson's horror sensibilities. Yeah. Because um, they really tried to make it like a good set piece. Yeah. Um, And like, I applaud like some of the staging and blocking, but it just didn't look that great to me. Um, I do, you know, Galadriel gets her little Legolas moment where she gets to be all badass (laughs) and a look away cut, which, you know, I'm always up for a little girl bossing if it's in the action sense. Um, (laughs) But obviously this was, I think this was very much there to be like, let's do a big kind of action thing right away before we get into the more uh, mundane, like palace intrigue kind of stuff. They're going to go after this.
1: Yep. Um I saw uh, that bit where Gladriel runs up the sword and I was like, this is old. I know this is it. This is the scene that's gonna get it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but all all that stuff ultimately takes us back to uh Gladriel's men not really wanting to do this shit anymore, which you know, sure, I can yeah. I can support that. Um so they eventually uh, head back to Linden. Um and this is where we meet Gilgalad, who is king of the elves and i got to say gilgalad is a wet fucking fart of a performance <laughs> yes. at least so at least so far for me um i think i mentioned earlier uh possibly in our preview episodes that i do not like the elvish aesthetics at all i do yeah. not like the hair i do not like the clothing i do not like the laurels um i'm okay with some of the set design stuff uh, like some of the stuff we see later with like the what's it called? <clears throat> the mausoleum cut into the, like the tree trunks. That's kind of yeah. cool. But like a lot of this stuff just feels very bland, um, very basic. And it just like Gilgalad had absolutely zero stage presence. Yeah. And maybe this is like some like amazing characterization because he doesn't have any presence in the books. No. But to me it just felt like this is the most boring looking guy doing the most boring looking stuff.
1: Yeah, uh, well, and I think it's a shame, um, and, and I have to keep reminding myself that like the important the the way I'm going to get through this TV show is by throwing out everything that I know about Tolkien and pretending none of it's real. Uh, because if I try and hold it to that standard, I'm just going to be upset the whole time. Um, but um, Gil Gil Gallad is is a really interesting character because he mostly exists in marginalia, um, and um, yet still fits fills such like an important role because he is this. Um, latter day father figure to Elrond, who has spent his whole life in varying stages of fatherlessness and semi fatherlessness, um, in a story where the relationship between sons and fathers is such an important um, relationship, um, and Elrond's kind of steerlessness and and his having father figures and losing father figures and having brothers and losing brothers, um, it, it comes to kind of a peak with um, Gilgalad and and um, the Battle of the Last Alliance, where Gilgalad alongside Elendil uh, is killed. Um, And that is the moment at which Elrond is finally becoming, you know, it's a crib, the Peter Jackson movie lines, you know, he's coming, becomes what he was always meant to be. Um, And that, that relationship to me is even though it exists basically in the the blank space between lines, um, in some cases, it is so crucial to understanding Elrond because you have to have that sense of like intensity and loss. Um, And, and for that to be there, there has to be this intense sense of uh, camaraderie of familiarity, familial closeness of intimacy. They both share quite a lot in that um, Elrond was sort of um raised in ways by uh, Maglor and Mithras, who who are Fanorians and um Gil-galad, um, at least in some versions of the text, his, his father was Fingon, who was very, very close with Mithras. Uh, and, and there's all these sort of intimacies and connections there. And I don't think any of it comes across in any of the conversations between Gil-galad and Elrond or Gil-galad and anyone or Galadriel and anyone. And, and I think you are right in that um, Gil-galad just, yeah, I don't know why he's here. I don't know what he's doing. I, Why? Who cares? Yeah. Um, and... <clears throat>
0: So he is granting Galadriel and her men um, access to Valinor, um, or the chance to return home, if I understood that correctly. Um, I did not actually know, um, again, mostly coming this through the Peter Jackson films, that they weren't allowed to go back or were prevented from going back. Could you explain that one to me a little
1: bit? Yeah, so when Fanor made his oath and said, we are going to Middle-earth to get back the Silmarils, um, a whole bunch of the other Noldoran Nildor- elves um, decided to go with him, maybe not necessarily to get the Silmarils. Actually, in Gladriel's case, explicitly not to get the Silmarils, explicitly because she wanted to go rule a kingdom of her own. And that is something that is clearly stated in the text. Now, albia and the Silmarillion, so it's not in the appendices. Um, but uh, when they went, the Valar were like, do not do this. If you do this, you will not be allowed to return to to this Garden of Eden that is a uh, Valinor. And they all went anyways. And so they had this band placed upon them, uh, people who are familiar with the lore will rightly point out that this ban has been, by and large, lifted by the time we get to the Second Age. Um, I will note, though, Galadriel never shows an interest in returning to Valinor Um and uh, kind of only starts to feel that pull in the latter half of the second age and the start of the third age. Um, and that's only after she's established Lothorian and realizes it's only a shadow of the place that she grew up in. Uh, so this whole thing, just again, like I have to keep saying to myself, this is not Galadriel, Tolkien's Galadriel. This is Jeff Bezos' um, Jeff Bezos' Galadriel going to Valinor Uh, planning to go back to Valinor at this stage in her life is, I guess, fine, because this is the lore they've set out for themselves. But J.R.R. Tolkien's Galadriel would not have been at this point.
0: I assume she's going back to Valinor to bust some unions or something like that. Um, But um, all all that aside, um, let's talk about something I did like, and that would be Al Ronda, as played (sighs) by Robert Arameo. Um, Personally, um, I think he's right up there with Morfid Clark in terms of what I enjoyed most about this. Um, I, I just think he had a lot of those like Elrond mannerisms I learned through Hugo weaving yeah. like these like clenched jaws or just kind of like half smiles, but also like kind of friendly. I, I really liked his stuff with Durin, yeah. um, but just talking about the stuff here, I thought he played it well. Um, also just got hat tip to the actor Arameo just because He is once again stepping into big shoes. First, he fills Sean Bean's role as young Ned Stark in Game of Thrones, and now he's doing young Elrond as played by Hugo Weaving, and I think he's just doing a bang-up job so far.
1: Yeah. I mean, my only criticisms of Elrond's character so far are criticisms explicitly related to the screenplay. Um, I think I... um, I'm absolutely delighted in every single way by uh, Robert Arameo. I think he is doing a very thoughtful presentation of Elrond. I also think he's playing an Elrond that feels like the young kind of baby Elrond and it, it's kind of a joke for like Lord of the Rings slash Silmarillion fans that like the the Elrond that we see in uh, the Lord of the Rings is this grizzled veteran and the Elrond that we see in uh, the Silmarillion is literally a baby um, and I think Robert Arameo is, is towing the line quite well right now between <laughs> baby and grizzled veteran um, and I think it comes across um, remarkably fluidly even though he is hamstrung at pretty much every turn by like absolute dog shit dialogue
0: and when when he approaches galadriel about like accepting the gift and returning to valinor do you think he's doing this on behalf of gilgalad and i'm sorry i'm going to pronounce it gilgalad i no it's fine um, that, um or do you, do you, like do you think he's being asked to be like hey can you convince her to kind of just go back and get out of everyone's hair or do you think he's like earnestly saying it's time to put down your sword? Uh,
1: so I don't know. Um, so I want to preface this by saying I really hate their dynamic um, in every way. I think it's enormously condescending and not at all reflective of what uh, their relationship would have been. Um, and it's entirely the fault of bad screenplay. It's not the actor's fault. Um, I would say in in like J.R.R. Tolkien's Elrond, would have been saying it out of a genuine care for Galadriel. Um, and I think like out of a genuine desire to see uh uh to see people who are good not needlessly suffer. Um That said, um I think Elrond in this show is probably doing it for Gil Gallad, I guess. Um but it it doesn't I don't know. I can't figure out Elrond in this show so far because, like, he doesn't seem like his own man. Like, he has a personality and a half, but he doesn't really seem to have any motivations besides going where he is told, when he is told to do it, um, and so it makes it quite hard because because the Elrond of of uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion is always very clearly motivated by something. Um, so I don't know. Um, I I don't know. Um, I find it strange because I think um, I don't think Elrond would have done. I don't think Elrond would have ever closed his eyes to the threat of Sauron. Um, I think that is a a misread. Um, And I think, um, given that I don't think that Elrond would have ever closed his eyes to the threat of Sauron, I also don't think he would have ever sent someone who is, at least in this instance, a a hardened and skilled warrior away when they obviously are going to need them. Um, So this whole thing seems weird to me. I just have to assume that, I guess in this case, Jeff Bezos' Elrond uh, is doing stuff on behalf of Gilgalad.
0: Sounds great. Um, I will say um, they kind of tried to have it both ways because they did have Elrond say, if I get any hint of the enemy, I will come fetch you or like let you know or something like that. Um, But it it, it is kind of weird. Let's just stay with Galadriel here um, because after like a night of drinking wine, I guess, um, they get her on a boat (laughs) um, and they um, sail off into uh, Valinor, the Undying Lands. Um, A couple things. Um, I think visually, like as they're on the boat, you see um, all of them are dropping their armor. Um, They're very cheap looking armor. Um, And they're just kind of wearing their robes. I assume this is kind of like going into heaven. Um, And then they see the white birds flowing overhead, which to me was calling back to her little swan at the beginning of this episode. Um, any comments on this before we get to essentially the clouds opening up for
1: them? God, I shouldn't say this. I really shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Um, and God, nobody sue me. And um, this whole stripping down thing, stripping off the armor and stripping them down into the long underwear. And um, this is a ritual part of entering the Mormon temple. Um, and it's something you're meant to do when you're like, uh, 18 or something. And it, it has a, an enormously controversial, uh, kind of reputation to it. Um, and, and I don't want to say too much because I want to defer to people who are experts in this, and and certainly in in cult programming and deprogramming. And this is a ritual um, explicitly uh, in the Mormon church. And I cannot believe I didn't clock it until just now, but that having someone strip you down um, and and put you into like either just a, a small sort of thin... Uh, linen, uh, dressing gown, or in some cases, nothing at all. As you prepare to face God, that is an explicitly Mormon thing. And I had not clocked that at all until just now. Um, And it gave me the heebie-jeebies and I didn't like it when I was watching it for the first time. And I was like, this just seems weird. Um, And I was kind of trying to put it down to it's weird that it's just Galadriel here as the only woman. And they've like tried to do this whole, we're making Tolkien's world more diverse, but then it is literally just like Tolkien, Tolkien- tokenism uh and i actually think the reason why i was kind of feeling uncomfy is because it is literally that uh mormon temple based uh ritual and it is a bit heavy, like
0: so the clouds like open up uh which i assume is like how they enter uh valinor the undying lands it reminds me a little bit of monty python and the holy grail when the clouds open up and you see god's <laughs> face um i don't think it looked like that bad but it just it's a visual like when the sky opens up and you see like the light of god um you know, that is something. And this is when we first uh, see the comet that uh, flies out of there. Um, I, it looked like it flew out of there. I can't necessarily say it did. Um, And then we see that comet kind of streak across the sky. We see a lot of various characters look at it and we'll circle back to the comet, I'm sure. But um, this is kind of where Galadriel tries to turn back around uh, or tries to turn around. Um, This is where she abandons her man and jumps into the water. Um, one visual thing I actually, I I think this might be my favorite visual moment of the show was when, uh, Nori was watching the comet crash into the ground and when it made its impact, they cut to Galadriel splashing into the water. Um, I thought it was just a very good use of the kinetic, um, you know, concept of cinema where like one action easily flew into another as a nice transition and kind of showed those two events being linked up. Uh, one thing I kind of wanted to ask you about, because I know you were obliquely talking about this in the Discord with uh, some of our friends earlier, um, like the great tragedy is, um, you know, Eru Iluvatar – sorry, the god of Middle-earth, Eru yeah. gives this gift of mercy, the gift of death, uh, mm-hmm. right? It's like the gift of death, which is a mercy, which is actually a blessing of sorts in a way. Mm-hmm. Um what does it mean for Galadriel to be essentially refusing that gift in this moment
1: ah uh, she is not so it, good interesting question she is not refusing this um the, the gift of death is a gift uh it's it's called the gift of men um, and it is a gift given only to uh men uh, so so when when men die um in in, in and this is capital M men uh, when men die in the in on Arda um nobody knows where they go Um, after they die. Uh, Their their fates are sundered from the fate of Middle-earth, or from Arda, from Earth. Um, when elves die, they are reborn in the halls of Mandos, which is in Valinor, um, and so they are reembodied, um, and they never get to die, or they will not get to die until the unmaking of the world in the last battle between the elves and uh, the Valar and Eru against Morgoth. Um, and and the reason it is a gift for the men is that they will never have to continue to be reembodied and reembodied with the ultimate goal of facing down this horrific war at the end of days, like Judgment Day. Men are able to go on and go beyond. Um, What is um, significant about Galadriel turning away here is that this is her set, well, I don't know. I don't know, actually, if this is her second time turning away in uh, Amazon Lord of the Rings universe. Um, but she's turned away from Valinor once uh, and was exiled for it, and it caused her a mu- huge amount of pain. And Middle-earth is a place of um, intense uh, suffering and, like, blood literally soaks into the soil here, and it's the blood of people Gladria loves. Um, and here for her to turn around and leave is her for her to accept that that kind of ongoing warfare is something that she has to take on and instead of getting to go live out her days in comfort and in peace in Valinor she's taking up the life of the, the sword and the ploughshare in some ways um and that would be the significance there um she like Galadriel won't get to die until the end of at uh, the end of days um and even then you know maybe only tenuously die
0: Uh, I, while, while we're here, uh, I do want to mention that, uh, Galadriel took a dagger from Finrod. Um, it looked like he was going to be entombed with it, but she took it as a visual symbol to like that she was going to carry on his mission or his legacy, however you want to describe it. Um, and that's been a big visual marker. It was a visual marker here, um, cause she was reluctant to put down the dagger, um, on the boat as they were sailing into Valinor and she grabs it before she dives into the water and starts swimming away. Um, I also have to point out, man. Do, can elves just like swim forever? Um, <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> because like it, like I, I guess they have to because there's like, like I don't know how many ships are passing that close near to the entrance to heaven. Um, yeah. So it is kind of, it did strike me as kind of strange. A lot of people made jokes about uh, Gendry from Game of Thrones, like. Davos puts him on a boat in season three um, and then he's just kind of like off screen for four seasons and people just assumed he was rowing all that time. (laughs) Um, And then Gendry also does that big run from when they're beyond the wall and they see the zombies and they tell him to run back to the wall. Um, I'm, all of this is to say is that I think Galadriel can challenge Gendry in terms of like the fantasy decathlon. Because um, both of them are just like doing these amazing feats of strength that I think are impossible. And I guess Galadriel's an elf, so maybe it is possible for her.
1: It's definitely not possible. Definitely. Um, well, you know what? Again, I'm going to have to keep saying this. It's definitely not possible with Tolkien's elves. Fuck knows if it's possible with Jeff Bezos' elves. I guess the answer is yes, it is.
0: This is this is where I miss Peter Jackson because he would have just had Legolas like jump on the water and just start running across it. Yeah, um, like, too right. I, that would that would have been great. I actually honestly would have fucking loved it if they Galadriel <laughs> just started walking on water. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, it doesn't remind me of any religious figures otherwise. Not at all. Um, so eventually she comes upon a raft. And um, unless this is not been clear to everyone before this, we're just going to mix in both episodes one and two in our analysis in terms of the plots uh, discussion. Um, so this is all in episode two now. And she is adrift, which is the episode title name. Um, <laughs> and she comes across this group of random people who are supposedly from Harad or the South. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of iffy about exactly where it's from or I'm just too stupid to really pick out exactly what they meant. And um, they bring her on board, but they're not super trusting of her. Um, namely, this one dude who is, I assume, supposed to be one of the heartthrobs of this show, uh, Halbrand. Oh, is he um, really? Do, oh, boy. I think he's supposed to be one of the babes. Oh, we um, are bereft. So, <laughs> uh, but anyways, he, he's an interesting character, and we're going to circle back to him in our spoiler section, in our token token section, because I think we have some ideas, but I don't want to get into it here. Um, but he he says some very telling lines, like looks can be deceiving or something like that. Um, and then while they're on this raft, I think there's like four or five people, they are attacked by a sea monster, which I want to pat myself on the back because I mentioned in our preview episode that, hey, that looks like a sea monster. Are there any sea monsters in the legendarium? And people were like, nope, there aren't any, um, or there aren't really any, but apparently they came up with the worm, um, which is a giant sea beast, not a dance Um I I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but I think the big telling moment is that um, Halbrand basically lets everyone else on the ship die, but he does go back and save Galadriel, who's drowning at one point. She was like tied to a post on the raft and that all kind of went under and she was sinking down. Um, And then Halbrand jumps after her and kind of uses the rope and the post to like pull himself to her and then swim up with her. Um, all of this is very evocative of Frodo and Sam at the end of Fellowship of the Ring down mm. to the actual composition on screen, like very blue, a very vertical orientation of what is happening, um, which there are a bunch of Peter Jack- Jackson visual shout outs or homages here, um, or you can just call it copy paste if you want. <laughs> I thought this one effective, w- worked best um, for me out of the entire series
1: and so I this is interesting like you are right um, I hadn't picked up that this is it. pretty much the same thing as the Sam and Frodo uh, bit in, in Fellowship you are definitely right that's what they were going for because to me I looked at it and this is just because I saw the movie rewatched the movie recently um, it's like the bit in Master and Commander where they cut that wee boy off uh, when he's like uh-huh. trying to swim back to the ship and Russell Crowe's like fuck that little kid uh, and they cut him off and then it's all really sad and he's like adrift at sea and I was like oh cool Master and Commander bit like finally someone's really picking up on the like Mariner theme of the like various uh, cultures of Middle Earth. We're going to get some like proper old world style British Empire naval battles. Um, but you are right. It is, it, is, uh, it is a lift from Fellowship and not as exciting as I was thinking it was. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And uh, Halbrand, as we
0: should mention, is a show invented character. Um, he yeah. is not someone from the Legendarium. So. Um, they have a lot of leeway with whatever they want to do with this guy. Um, in the end, uh, we find that uh, Hallbrand and Galadriel are saved um, by a much, they basically bump into a much larger boat. Um, and uh, the boat, we presume, is going to be commandeered by Um, But that is something that is left to us for the third episode. Uh, before we move on to any plot threads, anything else you want to say about Galadriel and her uh, sea voyages in these first two episodes?
1: No, I think it's boring. I think they're just doing shit Aowen, which is fine. I guess we all are entitled to our own uh, shit Aowen uh, because none of us can be real Aowen, who is the only non shit Aowen. Yeah, it's fine. It's boring. I want it over with, to be honest. Um, I want to see Galadriel either go like properly. I don't like Mondays and just kill a whole bunch of people in cold blood, or I want to see her uh doing some like city building, which is what she was kind of really the most talented at. Um, this in between is a bit weird to me, but whatever. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we've talked about her as like a bit of a colonizer in the legendarium, as someone who came to Middle-earth as having ambitions, um, ambitions that aren't just defeat Sauron and Morgoth or whatever. Um, I didn't get any of that here, and I was kind of hoping we would, um, but I will say with five seasons, you know, they might get there. Um, That might be an ambition they develop, so I don't want to like castigate castigate the entire thing right now. I think that's the hardest part about covering television um, is the fact that it's kind of an ongoing medium. You know, like, we don't know what the rest of the season's going to hold, and then, obviously, they can retool entire characters and storylines in between seasons. Um, so there, there is always the opportunity that some of this stuff can improve or will be, like, changed materially going forward. So Yeah. Um, then let's hop on over to our other elf buddy that we like, that being Elrond. Wait. So... Um, once he's kind of done telling Galadriel that she should go fuck off and die, or whatever <laughs> Valinor is to those people, <laughs> um, we get kind of his, like, him being set on his little, you know, initial plot thread. Um, that is to work with Celebrimbor, um, who is an actor I quite <laughs> like, but again, I just do not like the aesthetic design of Celebrimbor. He looks like a fucking CPA. Yeah. Um, he looks like people I worked with. I, I don't want to be an ageist here, but I do like Peter Jackson, just like putting that sheen on all the elves. So none of them have wrinkles. Yeah. Um, It just like, uh, uh, I forget the actor's name. Who's playing uh, a Caleb Charles Edwards, Charles Edwards guy. I like quite a bit. He's just, he just looks so old and like, you can see all the wrinkles. Um, so basically he takes uh Alrond along with him to Ariador. Um I missed what city that he is based out of. Did you
1: uh, what is it? Uh Aragian. So they don't actually say Aragian, that so the region Aragian. is Aragian. Um it's Austin Hill, uh, which is the city of the elves. Uh, but they don't name it. They just name it as Aragian and put it on the water for some reason. But yeah.
0: Okay. So um he basically goes to uh this other elvish settlement that's in Aragian. Um, we get to see uh Feanor's hammer, is that what it is uh, on his table? The one that uh,
1: <sighs> wrought the Silmarils? Yeah, yeah. Not a thing, really. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I have to do this. I was like, don't say anything about it, Emily. Just let it let it fly. Um, I actually want to push back on the the stuff. I agree with you that he looks too old. Um, but here's the reason why I think he looks too old. Um, he's about two thousand years younger than Gladriel, Um and I don't think it's a matter of ageism to be like this is a wrong casting. I think it's a matter of pointing out the like incredible amounts of sexism involved in uh, how they have cast this show, and that they needed someone to be like older, or, like wiser and more mature, so they cast an older man to play it and they needed someone to be wily and headstrong and naive and really in need of kind of a good like beating into order and so they cast a young woman um and if the elves are ageless then why is it that Galadriel has to be 20 well 28 years 29 years old um and this is no knock on Morphid Clark I think she's absolutely brilliant I think she's by far and away the strongest part of this uh series but if they wanted to cast these elves um in a way that didn't look ridiculous then cast a 50 year old Galadriel cast a 50-year-old Galadriel to match your 50-year-old Kella who is 2,000 years younger than her, or fuck off and get out of my face. Um, and, like, this is actually the one thing where I do get a bit heated on this because I think this is, like, so blatantly um, indicative of the heinous levels of sexism still present in Hollywood today. Um, and I think the fact that, like, people are basically, like arguing in favor of a horrifically patriarchal decision by being like well it's ageism actually really sucks like it really 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 does suck like nobody is saying that this dude is bad at his job or should not be cast because he is an elder man (laughs) not even an elder man a 50 year old man fully middle-aged like these are the people who are least oppressed by the world um and being like well why have we cast a 30 year old to be someone who is 2,000 years older than him Um, i think it just sucks and it just makes me mad yeah. No, I won't Sorry, that is Fanor's hammer to answer that question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it is Fanor's hammer. And I think we start getting the seeds of the forging of the rings of power here um, because uh, Celebrimbor is definitely giving that like guy who has great ambitions was going to do something that utterly fucks everyone the way he's <laughs> talking about. Uh, only pain can give rise to beauty or, you know, great acts of creation require some suffering or like labor or, you know, He's just a bunch of, like, I'm going to do something totally fucked up. That's basically the subtext yeah. of all of his dialogue to Elrond, <laughs> um, because he feels like he has not left his mark on the world. Yeah. Um, I also want to circle back real quick. I think part of the reason I did not dive visually with this Calibrimbor is because I have played the Shadows of War and Shadows of Mordor games, and you are half Calibrimbor in that game. You are possessed by his spirit. Nice. Um, you, you are a wraith for him, essentially. Um And his design in the game is very in line with Peter Jackson's, like kind of like Battle Elrond look. Um, But I just feel like that look just like struck me a lot harder than um, what's it called, Admin Assistant Calibrimbor that we got here. Um, But uh, so (laughs) basically, (laughs) so uh, all that's to say is that what uh, Calibrimbor wants to do is build like essentially the world's greatest forge. Um, But to do that uh, within the time that he wants, like, there aren't really people around to help him. And by people, I mean elves. Uh, So this is where Elrond's like, hey, I know some dudes. Um, And we begin our trek to Moria. Um, and before we get to Moria, I got to say, this is another place. I swear, I really like, I, I mostly like this stuff. Uh, but I really did not like their approach to Moria because the back tr- the background looked really fake and like cgi Um, Also, they were just like two guys who crossed like half a continent. It looked like on foot oh, yeah, with yeah. No, no retinue, at least not on horseback. It just seemed no. really weird. Yeah. Um, and then once Elrond is allowed in, Caleb is just like, well, now I got to walk back. Yeah, um, I, I, I hope he brought his AirPods with him so he could listen to something on the way home. But he's listening to a just... podcast
1: <laughs> and crying because we're calling him old. <laughs> oh, I like you,
0: Charles Edwards. I swear, I love you when Batman Begins. Um, <laughs> anyways, but like, it, it's not something that I would. S- it would never be anything like I rate this show poorly because of it. It's just things that stick out as kind of like weird staging or like maybe missing some stuff on screen. Like the mi- mise en scène felt a little incomplete the way they just kind of yeah. scrolled up there. Yeah. Now, my question for you is: This is presumably the West Gate into Kazadum, which would be the same one the Fellowship took into um, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but this is not the same looking door. We don't see the two trees decorating it. Um, was that part of the door built later?
1: Cause I feel like Celebrimbor may have built the door. Am I misremembering yes, here? You are correct. Uh, so it is, you are, you are, uh, correct. This is the Western part of Moria. Um, this is the Holland gate is what it's called. Um, I hate to do this. I don't hate to do this because it it lets me be really smug and annoying and pedantic. Um, The answer to this is this gate has not yet built. uh, The door has not been yet been built because it was built by Celebrimber and the dwarf Narvi um, and uh, placed in in the Holland Gate. Uh, The reason why it is not here, even though it probably should be, is big question marks over uh, my head right now. Um, I think it's because they've compressed the timeline quite weirdly Um, in the actual story of the relationship between the dwarves of Kazadu and the Elves of Aragian and Celebrimber, Elrond is not at all a player. Uh, Celebrimber is perfectly capable of making his own introductions. Thank you very much. Uh, And that friendship is a really important friendship that um, is crucially instigated by Celebrimber. Uh, By the time uh, anyone would really, any of the other elves who are not the Elves of Aragian would be getting anywhere near Moria, that door would already be in place.
0: Okay. I I fully expect... um, in exchange for the dwarves helping build, uh, the forge for, uh, Celebrimbor, I imagine his gift might be building this gate and then setting upon the spell or whatever you want to call it so that you have to say Melon to enter that we see Gandalf saying, um, just calling that shot right now.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. Um,
0: so, uh, when they, when the dwarves, uh, I guess the door warden Amoria essentially refuses entry to the two elves. Um, I guess uh, Elrond, you know, he invokes Sumai, which is a Game of Thrones reference, but essentially he calls out some weird tradition that will allow him entrance no matter what. Um, Basically, he's calling for an endurance test, um, which we'll get to in a second. But I do want to talk about um, Elrond being allowed into Moria. Uh, Calabrimbor has to go back, like we said, on foot with AirPods. And uh, I actually really liked the approach of Elrond into Moria and seeing everything around it. Again, it's something that I felt was like conceptually incredible how well it actually looked is, you know, I don't think it looked bad. I don't think it looked as bad as some of the worst parts of these first two episodes. But it's definitely something that's like, ooh, I really wish there was maybe a little more practical effects in here mixed with everything else. Because I feel like the lighting was really great. Um, The inclusion of greenery was really great. And we got some great shots showing the various like. I don't want to call them, but like the various caverns and the various paths leading this way and that way and the various homesteads. Um, I think it's a very well-conceived internal Moria is basically what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the kind of success of the show, and this is going to sound horrifically douchey and good because I'm intending it to be horrifically douchey. Um, the success of the show so far has been in lowering my expectations so thoroughly that by the time we got to Moria, I was really impressed. Um, and it's the total inversion of Peter Jackson's fellowship of the ring, where every single subsequent scene of that film until we get to Moria is raising my expectations higher and higher and higher to the point where when we get to Moria, I'm sort of in the mindset of there's no way they can top this. And then of course they do top it and it's incredible, uh, this film or this TV episode to the opposite by just disappointing me continually until I was like, yeah, Moria does look good. You're right. It's fine. (laughs) Um, I think the like getting the mirror stuff in, that's a nice little fucking Easter egg for all of the people who are aware of the books. Um, I think the greenery, you're right. That was a nice touch. It's all just not as majestic as I wanted it to be, but I think that's kind of true of this whole show where every single thing where it is meant to be like the tragedy of this era, is that it is in some ways the height of these various cultures on Earth. It is the height of the elves on Middle Earth. It is the height of the dwarves on Middle Earth. It is also a time of Uh, immense insecurity a a golden age of sorts Uh, like a literal golden age uh, like the 1930s in America 1920s in America where at the end there is this horrific precipice of the Great Depression coming and so even though you're surrounded by all this wealth you're also surrounded by this underclass of horrific misery Um, and I think this show is just failing to reach the heights of the grandeur that I wanted of it Um, and I think Moria is like definitely the epitome of that in a lot of ways but because it beat me down so thoroughly by the time we got in there I was like yeah cool
0: yeah, I will say um, this. Is, I'm not going to make a lot of House of the Dragon comparisons, but that is also a prequel to Game of Thrones. And the set and production design is so much more lavish, specifically because it is the height of the Targaryen Empire. So it feels very of a piece that it looks so much more stylish than nice. Um, and then even the Star Wars prequels have a little bit of that. Granted, it's aged a little worse visually. <laughs> but, you know, the first time I saw Phantom Menace, is like, oh, this is a little sleeker. And this is what I would expect. Um, before like the corruption of the empire and stuff like that, when the republic was at its height. So yeah, um, yeah, there's that. Um, I know we have uh, different differing opinions on the score, but I do like the dwarvish music. I think that was one I had picked out well before I watched the show. I was listening to McCreary's soundtrack. Um, it is a little bit playful. Um, it's not like the grunting and the throat singers that we had um in casa doom in the fellowship of the ring but i just felt like it had a good pace um anything you want to say about the dwarvish music
1: oh it's literally a carbon copy of the moria music in latro <laughs> so right. i
0: did laugh at that because i was like yeah i've heard this one before <laughs> um and then we get this um okay so we get the speed of strength competition between prince durin uh, would yep. that be durin four Yes. Um, who, who will become Durin four? because we meet his dad, who I assume is Durin III. Uh, oh, shit. No, maybe,
1: maybe, fuck, Peter Mullen is Durin the fourth, and I think whoever this lad, who I keep forgetting his name, Owen Arthur, or whatever, uh, he is Durin the fifth. Fuck. Okay. How okay. do I not remember this? I don't care about
0: the Dwarves, but yeah, they're numbers. Okay, um, so they basically do this uh, rock hammer uh <laughs> competition where they have to just keep breaking hammers i assume the uh, rocks are being fairly weighed to ensure they are the same density and mass uh, before Mm. they're put in front of each of these people um i like that the dwarves that are all around are chanting kaza do kaza do kaza (laughs) do um i kind of want to say are you chanting kaza doom or kaza do earns um (laughs) that's kind of the joke i wanted to make but um i thought it was good i I am very interested in the dwarves because we got so little of them in the Lord of the Rings and we got such unsatisfyingly much of them in the Hobbit films. Um, I just am interested in another version of the dwarves, especially now here at the height of their power.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say this is a, a scene I would categorize as a dude's rock scene.
0: Oh my God. You did it. <laughs> you son of a bitch. You did it. <laughs> um Elrond eventually relents in uh, the competition. He kind of fucks one up, uh, like he fucks up a rock break, and then they get him a new hammer, and then he kind of lays the hammer down. Um, maybe that's symbolism, given all the stuff we saw with between him and Celebrimbor talking about Feanor's hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, who's to say? But anyways, Alrond lays the hammer down, and he relents and gives up, so Doran wins, and the, what's it called, his boot, He uh, what's it called, for his winning, uh, basically Ron has to leave and never come back, but Ron very savvily, um says, hey, um, will you at least walk me out so we can catch up a little bit? Um, and then this kind of gets to one of the few parts that I will say I unconditionally liked um, when they were on the lift up, because mm-hmm. I actually felt emotional a little bit, because um, Doran is just hopping mad that Ron has not visited him for 20 years, and then I don't have the lines but him talking about I know it's a blink of an eye for you elves but for us that's a long time. I got married, I had kids and I feel like it's one of the best encapsulations of like the time dilation that ha- happens because of the elves immortal life. Like you get a little bit of it with Aragorn and Arwen in the movies but it's mostly just like Aragorn's going to die and she's not or something like that. Yeah. Um you don't really get the sense of wow, this this amount of time meant nothing to Elrond really. Um, or at least, you know, that's how Doran interpreted it. Whereas for Doran, like a lifetime happened. And I thought that was really nice. That was one of the two things that really kind of emotionally got me is like, oh, wow, there's pathos here. (laughs) Like here's character work. And this actually makes sense given, you know, the foundations of Tolkien's world. Um, so I really liked this bit. Um, and that leads us into our dinner with Disa, um, which, uh, Why don't you talk for a little bit?
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, So, so I think this is kind of interestingly played, and I I have to say, uh, off immediately, I think the showrunners being like the dwarves are not the butt of the jokes here was wrong. It's not true. Um, They're obviously playing off of uh, a whole bunch of stereotypes that, like, I'm not going to call them bigoted, but I'm going to say they're lazy stereotypes uh, that, like, are immediately evoked by like using Scottish accents. And I think the thing that I was really getting that was kind of disappointing me in a really sort of, like a, a sincere disappointment not even like a I'm happy that I get to hate the show but like a this is actually really disappointing is that they said that they were going to do right by these dwarves but these dwarves are not the dwarves of Tolkien's writing these are the dwarves of Peter Jackson's films um and the dwarves of Tolkien's writing um and you know we can we have had in one of our episodes an entire discussion about like where the background of these dwarves came from but they're upright polite polite to a fault um incredibly civil um in, in, incredibly sort of articulate and wise mannered folk, um, and, and that is their sort of defining feature. They are not the D&D dwarves. They are not the Owen Colfer dwarves. They are not the Peter Jackson dwarves. Um, and to see here that they were done as the Peter Jackson dwarves after the everybody involved with the show has been repeatedly saying, they're not going to be like this, they're going to be faithful to Tolkien, was like a huge letdown. None of this is the fault of the actors. I think the actress who's playing Disa is delightful. I think she has a whole bunch of charisma that was kind of not lacking, but like it's a very unique kind of charisma that I was excited to see on there. Um, I think the uh, intimation of the the kind of history of her of their of Disa and um, Duran's relationship was was interesting and kind of well thought out. Um, it did make me a bit better that again they've chosen to use Scottish accents without, uh, Scottish accents with a mining culture and then not bothered to look into like what the actual mining mannerisms of Scottish co- miners are because lo and behold the Scottish Central Belt for hundreds of years was nothing but miners um, at, with, uh, with, a, with a, a raft of fascinating uh, cultural idiosyncrasies that I think would have been really helpful for this production and they just obviously weren't interested in doing anything that wasn't a, a kind of cheap imitation of Peter Jackson stuff. So so that's my bitterness there. But the scene is really good. I like that kind of dinner party thing uh, with her being so much more open and kind of inviting towards Alrond and Alrond having this kind of, you know, he, uh, he knows he's in the doghouse, but he also knows that he knows his friend and he also knows that he likes his friend's wife and that his friend's wife is um, I, I, not a reflection of his friend, but he has married his wife for a reason and Elrond can see that reason quite clearly and because he can see that reason in her he also knows that his friend isn't like lost to him forever Um, and I think that was all kind of a nice play I think having um, a tree from the seed of Nimloth in the background that was really interesting and I really liked that and I thought that was a very nice way of setting up literally (laughs) uh, 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 setting up kind of like a a peace branch and olive branch uh, between the the elves and the, the dwarves that was a nice kind of bit of also set design getting that kind of courtyard back there. That was good. Um, It was all just like a good kind of breather from everything else that was going on.
0: Yeah, no, I, I like this scene. It might overall be my favorite scene, the Doran, Alrandisa Disa stuff. They're so um, cute. Yeah, no, I really liked it. I liked uh, Disa. I think uh, Sophia Nomvete is the name yeah. of the actor here. Um, just wanted to give her a little bit of shout out. Um, Yeah, um, just a couple of things for some of you people uh, out there. Um, if you don't clock any of the accent bigotry that Emily does, you're you're in my boat. I have no idea <laughs> about how Scottish people sound different from Irish or British people or Australian <laughs> people for that matter. Um even the French, you has are all just white to me. Um, so uh, I don't I don't yes. flag that. And I also just want to flag that when she says Scottish miners, uh, she means people who mine, not. <laughs> Little kids, just in case that was on your mind. If we were talking about House of the Dragon, she would mean minors as in kids, but oh, <laughs> with rings of power, we just mean people mm. who dig holes in the ground. Um, so it looks like, um, what's it called, uh, Dur- Prince Durin and Elrond leave on somewhat satisfactory terms. It seems like this is going to push us towards, yeah, we will get like a dwarf company to help build Celebrimbor's Forge. But that after Elrond leaves, we get to meet King Durin, who's played by Peter Mullen, uh. and the King is less happy that Elrond was here. Um, apparently, at the same time, they had just discovered something in a chest, and he lifts it up, and it's super shiny. Now, I have a question for you. Um, I'm going to assume our listeners are fairly smart, um, and we know that Mithril was like the lifeblood of Moria, and that's what... Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to assume was what they found that they're talking about. But I, as someone who doesn't know a lot about the Legendarium, I have no idea where the Arkenstone came from, and it was such a big plot point in the Hobbit films that I didn't even remember from the Hobbit book. Um, <laughs> is it any possibility that this is the Arkenstone?
1: Um, maybe. Maybe. Um Maybe. Um, I... I don't know. Uh, It it could be. Um, I don't think that the Arkenstone was found in Moria. I think the Arkenstone was actually found in Erebor. Uh, But again, I have to be... uh, Yeah, sorry, I've just checked my notes. It is found in Erebor. No, this is not uh, the Arkenstone. Or it could be the Arkenstone. I don't know. Um, I was thinking that this may be the either um, finding of... uh, so, So Durin has an axe... Uh, this is me not knowing my Duaro history as well as i should i apologize to everybody i really should have read up on this because i did know that this is a huge constituent part and um, there there is a, a a lot of kind of legendary axes that show up uh in 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 Duaro culture and uh, i think this might be it otherwise i think it might just be a reference to the ability to find mithril now um i truly don't know where they're going with this
0: that oh, sounds good um We'll kind of speed up because we've spent quite a bit of time on the first two plot threads. I think the next one we should just hop over to is, let's finish the last uh, elf-based storyline. That would be Bronwyn and Arondir in Mm. Tir Harad. I know you're not going to be a big fan of this plot thread, but I think to me, as someone who knows nothing about this region, because so these are show-invented characters and a location we haven't seen anywhere we think quote unquote, we'll come back to that a little bit later, uh, visually in any of the adaptations of this, this kind of interested me. Um, I'm a little iffy on Aaron Deere's character. He's the yeah. elf who's like reluctant to leave. Um, he has a very stony demeanor, which I'm not sure how well it played. Um, I am more into the Bronwyn character, um, uh, mostly because I think she's really cute.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and she beheads a orc, which always, you know, <laughs> wins favor in my eyes. Um, But this is all very fascinating to me because I hear the name Tir Harad. Um, I think the Harad dream, um, which I believe Harad just means south. Um, So I was thinking this was actually going to be Harad dream. But I think some people are convinced that this is actually proto-Mordor.
1: It is Mordor. Yeah, yeah it is in west central mordor <laughs> west central mordor born and raised uh yeah so it's it's the mordor before sauron's influence corrupts it um, this is also the kind of part of uh, of middle earth where sauron first starts to build up his base um tirharad in uh Sindarin means uh a south watch, essentially. Uh, tier, uh, tier means like watch, like minister, uh, tower of yeah. watch, tower of guard, uh, and Harad, as you rightly point out, means south. Uh, so this is the south watch of Mordor, um, and. uh... <sighs> Yeah, it's in Mordor. I think that's kind of an interesting thing, giving us a glimpse of if people who have seen the films now in their minds hearken back to the horrible, awful terrain that Sam and Frodo had to walk through on their way to to Mount Doom to destroy the Ring. That is where this lovely, lush green landscape is in the Third Age. So that is a kind of nice before and after.
0: Yeah. No. Um. I kind of liked it just because it was. Int- it for me, it's a part. It's a corner of the lore that through my experiences, I haven't seen at all. Um, These characters are completely brand new to me and to everyone. So it is like, if nothing else, it's a curiosity to me in a way that some other plot threads wouldn't be because I kind of know where they're going or, you know, know what they're building towards. Whereas this is at least kind of open-ended with, in terms of the characters. Um, I think we find um, like the big moral question they're posing, which I know you'll have a lot of thoughts on are, are these men necessarily evil Or was that just, you know, the sins of the father and that these people still have a chance to be good? Um, That's kind of what they're going for here. Um, I don't know if there's much else to say about it. Um, Oh, um, (laughs) there is uh, one scene where Bronwyn gives seeds to Aron Deer, um, and that is uh, Alpharin seeds is what I think they're called, and I believe that's the same thing as Symbol Mine.
1: Sure Um, is, yep.
0: Good So uh, they are doing that. And I also think there is a running thread through um, kind of some of these plot threads because um, Doran obviously got a seed for one of the trees from Elrond. Here we're seeing uh, seeds being handed over to Arondir. Deer. This is going to be like a meta metaphor that I don't think Emily's going to like, but it's kind of like how Tolkien created this great tree of fantasy that all sorts of writers basically took seeds and planted in their own gardens, whether it's George Martin or Brandon Sanderson or whoever else, uh, Kevin J. Anderson, if you want to mention that guy. Um, But it's basically, um, it feels like um, that's what Tolkien meant to the fantasy world a little bit. Like he like planted the world tree in the middle, like Idrisil from Norse mythology. And then everyone else was kind of able to take, you know, spores and seeds from it and plant their own little gardens. Um, And I like the idea that like, there's kind of like some cross-pollination happening across Middle Earth as we're seeing some cultures mixing between the dwarves and elves in Moria or the elves and the man here in Tir Harad. Um, I'm kind of liking the sea or sapling kind of metaphor that kind of goes along with this as we really are growing out the universe of Middle-earth. Um, that's yeah. probably a very charitable read of everything that's happening, but I do like that there is some kind of thematic coherence there.
1: Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I think it is good. I, I think you are absolutely right to to point out uh, the, the tree of life from North's mythology, because that's obviously very in line with what Tolkien does. Um, and there is no doubt that um, trees and growth and life um, are a very crucial part of what Tolkien writes. And at the end of Return of the King, um, Aragorn finds um, a, a seed of the White Tree of Gondor. And that is a crucial kind of moment symbolically to the refounding of Gondor as a kingdom born anew from from the sort of fires of destruction. Uh, I think you're totally right. Um, and I think it is really interesting, especially because we know that all of these plants and trees are doomed. Uh, they are going to grow, but only for so long. And then they are going to be stunted. And there is a kind of um awful tragedy in that, that I think is a good thing to start building now
0: yeah so um i like that um the other so also happening in this plot thread is we have uh bronwyn has a son named theo um who has a missing father which i'm sure will come up at some point again um i legitimately thought theo is was the child of bronwyn and aaron deer yeah uh but given that theo has strong elfish racism essentially um So if I know there aren't a lot of instances of uh, men and elves like mating, but if they did, would they necessarily have pointed
1: ears? (laughs) That's such a good question. Uh, Because
0: I think they definitely don't show Theo's ears, but I feel like he would know if he had pointed ears. So then he would know that Aaron is his father. So I'm Mm -hmm. guessing maybe he's not his father, but they really Um, wanted you to think that I think, especially with like the mixed race casting of this Theo kid.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good point. Uh it, <laughs> it is a good point. No, I had not thought of that. Um, and I don't think there is anything to explicitly say that uh the Prethel must have pointed ears. Uh no, sorry, I know this. They don't have to because the princes of Dol Amroth are uh sort of pseudo-prethel. They don't get the actual declaration of half elven, but they are half elven. Um, or one of the princes of Dol Amroth was half elven after Imazora married Mithrellus, and there's none of that sort of elvish. I hate saying this because it sounds race sciencey, but there's none of that all this sort of phenotype going on there. Uh, So no, they don't necessarily have to have pointy ears. So they could kind of be like, hey, hey, look who your father is.
0: Okay. So then I'm back on Aaron Deer being Theo's father. Um, I I was just waiting for some really dumb reveal where Theo like combs his hair back. He's like, wait a second. My ears are pointy. Oh no, he's my (laughs) father. It only happens at puberty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. It's like the X-Men getting their powers. Um, (laughs) So uh, we find that... uh, Theo and uh, one of his essentially racist friends, um, yeah. because this uh, friend was hectoring Aaron Deere at the bar earlier, uh, they have discovered an abandoned barn or a, someone else's barn, basically, and underneath it, they, there's a broken sword hilt. Um, and this broken sword hilt has been in the like press releases, like advanced images of the show. Um And it's very visually similar to the hilt of Narsil, the blade that that was broken, but it very much seems to be the evil sword. Um, It's a sword that is, um, first of all, it seems sharp uh, because uh, when uh, Theo's friend touches it, it like instantly cuts him, um, which reminds me again of Boromir at uh, Rivendell in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. And then when later uh, Theo is injured and his blood is running, the sword kind of sucks up um, his blood and seems to like r- repair itself a little bit. Like part of the blade grows back a little more, and then it also has that flashing Sauron symbology on it as well. Um, so I think this is going to be a thing. Um, what actually it is, I have no idea. Um, do you have any thoughts on it?
1: No, not at all. all right.
0: So, <laughs> um, in my quest to try and make like some kind of great thematic analysis of this show, um, I am trying to. Th- use the mirror of Galadriel as kind of like an organizing principle to this. Like we're going to see a lot of mirror images of stuff we saw in Peter Jackson's film, but like the dark reflection of it or the opposite side of it. And this very much feels like I said, a reflection of the sword that was broken um, like maybe a dark version of it or who knows? I I, I know uh, Narsil goes all the way back to the first stage, I believe, or even before that, um, but it would be, interesting if this somehow plays into the Narsil mythology Um, I'm obviously very loose with the lore so if someone like took that and then dipped dipped the evil sword into the good water and it came out as the good sword that might be something that works for me I don't really know (laughs) Um, and then there's also the um, thing that there's always corruptive elements to some of the dark powers in Middle Earth so whether this sword takes seas of Theo and like makes him do nefarious stuff Um, Also, we don't know who it belonged to. It's possible that one of the members in the Tir Harad village are still Sauron worshippers, Morgoth worshippers, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I think that's going to be one of the mysteries or, like, tensions that are just going to drive this first season.
1: Yeah. Um, So I'm kind of up to minds here because I think this sort of original storytelling is exactly what they should have been doing and just leave the fucking characters we already know alone. Um, But I'm also kind of in this weird position where I'm like... All of this feels a bit weird to me um because uh because they're asking that they started this plot by asking the question of like do we have to atone for the sins of the fathers um and I think that is a really good question because it it says that like the people who chose the darkness in uh, in the various wars of Middle Earth and Beleriand, and um, chose they made a choice. They were not compelled to do it. But then by setting up the sword, where the sword may be like a kind of point, a focal point of possession, I'm almost I'm almost worried that they're going to take away that autonomy and say that like oh a lot of these people were just possessed. Um, and I don't think that is good. And I don't think that's a point. Um, and um, not to take that horrible Star Wars line, you know, good people on both sides, bullshit too far. But not to say that there are good people on both sides, but there are people on both sides who are fully capable of making decisions. Um, And those decisions, you know, it's my great put that they had in stuff in the films. Uh, And once you take those decisions away for them by virtue of making them something magic and something out with their power, you almost lessen the kind of wrongness of it in a way and make killing the bad guys that much more morally kind of murky. Um, And obviously we don't know where they're going with this yet. And maybe maybe it's actually just an elven sword and it was good elf and the good elf was just fucking goth as hell. Um, But... (laughs) I suspect I know where this is going and I'm already a bit cranky about it.
0: Um, and then uh, kind of ending off this uh, little plot, plot thread um, after. So when Gilgalad gave gave uh, Galadriel the right to go west again, um, he basically said all elves that are on active military duty are free to return home, basically. Um, and this is what's happening with Aaron Deer and his troop in the south. Um, his troop all goes back, but Aaron Deere sticks around because he at least wants to say goodbye to Bronwyn. Um, and then when he does that, um, this kind of leads into a some like random guy shows up with this cow who's like squirting out like corruption out of the cow's udders, <laughs> which is which was kind of gnarly. Um, I know it reminded you of something, didn't it?
1: Yes. Last Jedi, Luke Skywalker cow see cow titty squeeze from hell the worst thing that has ever showed up in a star wars uh movie not by like quality but by like visceral ugliness Uh, and i like that they were like just get this all over ismail cruz cordova's hands just really fucking get it in there because that is the level of grossness i want out of things like this they committed there and that's good
0: so um while all this is happening we learn that it looks like orcs are tunneling underneath the villages, like they did it completely uh to a nearby village, and we see like a hole starting to develop under Bronwyn and Theo's house, um, which eventually leads us to uh I think Arundir um goes into the hole and goes one way. Um, and then he ends up coming out somewhere else. I kind of forget where he wound up at the end of all that. Um, and then uh one of the orcs kind of comes up out of the hole and attacks Theo and Bronwyn. Um and they win. They end up cutting off his head and Bronwyn presents it to the town and says, hey, we got to get the fuck out of here now, which they finally heed her advice. But I actually just want to say I love the orc designs. Um, everything I've yeah. seen from this show's orc designs, if that's where the budget is going, at least it looks like money well spent because um, yeah. it looks expensive, but also looks great. Um, I love the like animal skull on top of like his face. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought it was very gnarly. And especially after the Hobbit films, it felt good to have something practical and tangible there with the Yorks.
1: Yeah. I just watched predator for the first time last night and it felt very predator. And I was like, cool, that's great. That is that is definitely something that is in conversation with the wider cinematic landscape. And if they won't be in conversation with Tolkien, then at least being in conversation with the wider landscape of cinema is is good. And I, I also like that. And I think they have by and large looked very, very good.
0: Yeah. Um, So we'll see where that goes. Um, And then lastly, we are going to end with the Harfoot chat. Um, So the Harfoots are our proto-Hobbits. We are introduced to them early on, basically after all the Galadriel setup that we got to open this episode. Um, We see two hunters with their big antler backpacks like (laughs) treading across the country. Um, This is in Rovanion, I believe, if I remember correctly. And um, what's it called? One of them kind of sees something out of the corner of their eye and they talk about are there like weird things that live here, like dwarves or elves. they're like, no, Harfoot's like, what's a Harfoot? You're making me, we are making that shit up. There's no such thing as Harfoot's. Um, And this is all basically setting up a big reveal that after the hunters pass or these migrants, whatever they are, um, the Harfoot's reveal themselves. They're kind of a, this, I don't know how to say it, but like a stealth (laughs) village or like, you know, a, a society in hiding um. As soon as the people are clear, like, one of them blows a whistle. And then all of a sudden, this, like, empty-looking, you know, field and little grove of trees comes to life into a bustling little community. Like, houses go up out of nowhere. Things we just thought, thought were patches of straw become houses and roofs. Um, and then everyone kind of sets up shop. And then um, we have these very, like, I don't know how to describe the aesthetic here because it's not quite... Civilized is the wrong word and very loaded, um, but it feels very like hunter-gatherer society. Yeah, I I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what you think about all of this. So it's
1: like kind of, I would call it a probably like pastoral nomadic society. Um, I think you you are right to say that it is loaded. And I think it is either intentionally or not loaded. And I don't think that that is like something that we can necessarily elide in this conversation. And I may park the chat for now because I think it's kind of going to be boring for, for right now. But I think the fact that they've chosen Irish accents and including having almost no actually Irish actors cast, but then making a whole bunch of English actors do Irish accents for a pastoral nomadic culture. I find that loaded and I find that really loaded. And, and like, I'm not going to... Well, whatever. Fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> My reputation is in tatters anyways. Um, I find it very on brand for a whole bunch of Americans to basically blunder into a deeply politically uh, uh, heated situation in terms of the portrayal of Irish people and of Celtic people on in TV and in, and in cinema and basically pick almost entirely through ignorance and naive is the worst possible way of doing it uh, and think that they're kind of doing something cute and unique with it um and we'll be able to talk about that probably more in the coming weeks why why this is kind of really frustrating but yeah it is this kind of deeply sort of um forest nymph inspired kind of pastoral nomadicism um you are right on the hunter-gatherer stuff faux show sure.
0: yeah um and again I I apologize to my co-host. I don't flag any of that accent stuff. Um, and I do not care if you're mean to white people, no matter <laughs> what color of white you are. Um, so uh, basically, um, our main character, we there are actually several um, kind of hardfoots that get some kind of name and some kind of presence here. But I just kind of want to focus on our main one, uh, Nori. Um, mm. I believe her full name is Eleanor Brandyfoot. Um, and I actually kind of liked her. Like I said, I feel like she was the most robustly characterized character in this entire first two episodes. Yeah. Um, I just think, like, I instantly, like, had a vibe with her. Um, Again, I'm a little more bullish on the score overall than Emily, but I feel like the Hobbit one was a good mix of it's using a lot of the same instrumentation that uh, Peter Jackson used in um, – or not, uh, Howard Shore used in Concerning Hobbits, but it's kind of different scales and melodies, um, which I really like. But it still kind of feels evocative of that same – not quite Hobbit feeling, but it's very – it's close enough where I feel like, ah, yes, I can see these peoples becoming um, the Hobbits you know, in a generation or a millennia, whatever it is, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, I I think this was kind of funny for me because um, this was the one where I felt like all the rest of it was kind of Like, like passable to me. Um, It was definitely just kind of Bear McCree reheating what he'd already written for Outlander uh, and then putting it in here. This is the one where I kind of went. uh, uh, This is where it kind of falls down quite badly in comparison to the Howard Shore one for me. Um, And the one thing that I kind of have come to the conclusion of that's missing for me is the kind of detail orientedness of the scoring. And because if you listen to a lot of the Shire-based music, either Shire, the Shire, or Bag End, um, in, uh, in in Howard Shore's score, um, there's always this um, undergirding, um, a, a drum a percussive undergirding of a little sort of drum beat that sounds like Hobbit feet pattering along, um, and. and you know, it's not meant to be like a sound effect. It's not meant to go along with the actual walking around of a hobbit. It's meant to evoke that. And it's that kind of detail orientation that's really missing for me in Barry McCreary's score where like, it's getting the kind of, um, it, it, it's getting the kind of bigger elements of Howard Shore's score. Right. Which is like, it's fiddles, it's flutes, it's piccolos, but it's missing the, the kind of little spark of magic that really made Howard Shore stuff so great. Um and I think like if if Nori gets a theme and she she might get a theme to be honest I I've prevented myself from looking at the soundtrack because I wanted to hear the songs for the first time along with the scenes. Um, if she gets a theme, I will be delighted because I think she's the most compelling character so far. I think she the actress is banging. The actress is really great. Uh, the actor is really great. Like I am delighted by whatever's going on there. Um, but if there is a theme, I would like to see something a bit more kind of conscientious of what the character is and what the culture is in a way that kind of was true of the Howard Shore score.
0: Yeah, no, that's very fair. Um, So I'm going to tell you why I like the score and you are just going to shit all over me for it. (laughs) Um, It's because it reminded me of one of the few passable scores in the MCU. Um, That would be Alan Silvestri's work on Infinity War and Endgame.
1: Oh my God, um, I was literally thinking it sounded like a Sylvester one. That's so funny.
0: Um, which do, which has like a few like standout beats. Like, I, I'm sorry to go full MCU on you, but like, you know, when Thor arrives in Wakanda, there's that great Avengers bar. And of course, like the whole Endgame portal scene. But a lot of it is just very, this is going to sound like a, do, a knock, but it's just very serviceable, kind of epic, appropriate music. Um, I don't feel like, uh, so I've listened to most of, McCreary score, like the entire album that's available on Spotify. Most of it I said was basically in that Sylvester camp where I'm like, okay, this isn't something that necessarily stands out on its own. But if you pair it with the right visuals or moments, like I can really get into this. And then there were about three to four pieces I like specifically really liked. Um, the Dwarf one I mentioned, I was a little more bullish on this Harford score. But there are just like I picked out like four or five specific tracks. I'm like, okay, this really bangs. The rest of it is fine, but I can see growing it growing on me, especially if I end up like really liking the show. So,
1: no, I, um, I think that's totally fair. And I also think it, it's funny because I was watching Predator for the first time last night, which is scored by Alan, Alan Silvestri. And like one of the things I was thinking about is when you hire, like for example, someone like John Williams to do a score, you are hiring John Williams because you want the score to be a like a, another character as part of your film cast, and you are acknowledging that the the score will. Take center stage just as often as your cast does, uh, and that that is just part and parcel of the, the sort of John Williams package. There, guys like Howard Shore, and I think Howard Shore does it most successfully with *Lord of the Rings* and everything else he's written is kind of bland. But guys like Howard Shore or guys like Alan Silvestri are really good at doing competency, like absolute competency, where there's never anything that is bad. There's never anything that's bad, um, but there's also never anything that is John Williams level of you could you could get the entire plot of the film just through listening to the music. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's really nothing wrong with that. Um, and I think Howard, or not Howard Trump, Bear McCreary is, I don't know how old he is. I know he hasn't really been, he's only been around for like 15, 20 years so far. So as far as film composers go, he's quite young. And um, I think he maybe is still trying to find his feet or his like personal kind of signature a bit more. Um, And, you know, he might one day get to the point where he is, like, as kind of competent and has such a consistent batting average as, like, Alan Silvestri or Howard Shore. Um, And there's nothing wrong with writing like that. There really isn't. Not everybody has to be John Williams or uh, the guy, the Icelandic guy whose name I forgot, who did Mandalorian, which was awesome. Um, Uh,
0: Ludwig van Gorsen. Thank you. Gorsen, yeah.
1: Yes. Um, Um, Or... uh, yeah, uh, you know, there, there are guys who stand out, uh, there are writers who stand out, and then there are writers who get the job done, and there's nothing wrong with just getting the job done. And I think he's trying to get to the, getting the job done and hasn't quite reached that, like, greatness at getting the job done that Howard Shore hit with Lord of the Rings, but is definitely on his way there.
0: Um. So um, we, we get a little bit of stuff with Nori. She leads some kids to, like, steal some, like, blueberries from a nearby farm. Um, I think that might circle back at some point. We might learn whose farm it is. Not that it's anyone like relevant to um, the legendarium or anything, but I just feel like that's a plot point that's kind of lingering out there. Um, We see that there's like wolves that might be in the area, um, which is kind of whatever, just take note of that, I guess, for a future action (laughs) set piece or something. Um, And then I think the big thing is the comet that we saw at the end of episode one and we saw all the Elvish characters kind of look up at um, we see it crash down somewhere near um, wherever these Harfoots are in Ravanian. Um, And uh, Nori is the one who actually goes and finds what they're calling as the stranger. Um, and let's just talk about the stranger, I guess, because the show I think really wants us to be like, is this Gandalf or is the Sauron? And they're like doing equal imagery of both, I would say, mm-hmm. um, because when, um, the stranger lands in this like fiery pit or whatever. Um, The fire is not burning, which is something that you mentioned was also noted in the like extreme North with the opening with Galadriel. So that kind of ties the two like darkness um, because that was like a place of evil. And now this is the same thing Um, that makes me think it's Sauron. And when you get these like big overhead shots, it looks like a flaming eye with the stranger in the middle as the pupil. Mm. Um, But then once they like start dressing this guy and just like the big hair and the beard immediately is supposed to make Lord of the Rings fans think Gandalf. Um, And then near the end of the episode, he starts talking to fireflies, which, you know, talking to moths is like Gandalf's favorite pastime. Most of his friends are bugs. Um, So it's very, (laughs) very interesting. Um, Sorry, that's awesome. (laughs) um, And then, uh, so a lot of the second episode is like Nori kind of just like, we got to take care of this guy. And this is where like I I didn't write down the li- the lines for this, but I said there were two moments where I actually felt somewhat emotional by the writing. The first was Elrond and Durin. Mm. Um, this one, wa- there was one where um, Poppy, who is Nori's friend, is like, "Hey, let's just leave the guy. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's go back." And she's and uh, Nori said something to the effect is like, "I can't." And then he's like, "You can't or you won't." Is like, "I I won't leave this guy here." Yeah. Um It's just like no matter what, I am going to help this guy. Um, I don't know. It just, because I don't have like the weight of all of Tolkien's work on me, I feel like the main takeaways of the Lord of the Rings films are pretty simple or like very basic in terms of fellowship, camaraderie, hope, that kind of stuff. And I feel like this very much was that like, I can't look at a situ- situation and turn away from it. I wish I could, but you know, internally the character is like, no, I don't wish I could. Like this is who I am. I help yep. people. Um and I, I think that really sung. And this was like the most emotional part of these two episodes was uh Nori refusing to let this guy just like stay there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I will actually say this is this is a horrible indictment of who I am as a human being, but but the, the moment that almost got me in the show, the moment that almost convinced me uh, very stereotypically is a moment when um, Nori and Poppy are discussing what the fuck this thing is, um, and I think it's Poppy is like, can't be an elf because he's not handsome, um, and it's a funny line, um, but it's also a line direct from... The Two Towers. Um, and it's a line said by, of course, my favorite character, Faramir, when the rangers of Ithilien come on, come upon Sam and Frodo, and um, some of the rangers are discussing what the fuck these are, or are they, are they orcs, what are they? And Faramir says, it, they can't be elves because elves are meant to be fair. And Sam goes, meaning we're ugly. Um, and it's this lovely little kind of moment of humor, break of the tension. Um, and and it, it sticks with me because it, it is very funny. It is very pointed. Um, and seeing that, I was like, that is definitely where they pulled that from, I hope. Um, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I think that's where they pulled it from. And it had that moment of, oh God, all right, maybe this is good. And then it kind of fell apart for me. But like, I, I do love that. And I love their dynamic. And I love this kind of Interaction between like people who fundamentally don't matter because like unlike Alrond, unlike Galadriel, whose names we do know, um, in the rest of the legendarium, we don't know Nori and Poppy. So whatever they do, it may be important, but they are not remembered by the history books. And I, I think that's quite like a nice kind of uh argument to be making in a narrative story, um, or in a narrative story, right, in a narrative, uh, and I, all of that is quite quite delightful to me, um, and I do think that the dynamic is good. There's a bit where, uh, where not Gandalf, not Saruman, not Sauron, uh, is speaking in Quenya. Uh, and uh, he says two words. Uh, one is ure uh, and the other is mana. Uh, and this I was cracking up at because as I was doing uh, name translations for uh, patrons yesterday, I was spending a lot of time looking at these words. Uh, and uh, ure means heat or fire. Uh, and mana means blessed. Uh, so blessed fire, um, or you might say sacred flame. Uh, wielder yeah, of yeah. the sacred flame. Uh, so, you know, I hate doing speculation like that. I, I don't necessarily think that is like fun or, or conducive and it makes everybody look like a fool but uh you know those two words are definitely there and they are quenya which is what the peter jackson films establish as language in which gandalf casts spells so who knows
0: yeah no that's very good um the only reason i wouldn't think it's gandalf is just because it seems too obvious yeah (laughs) um and um as we're going to talk about here um in our spoiler section a little bit i also do not think it's sauron because i think they want to um kind of take us I don't think they would make Sauron that obvious to us, but I think they're going to wrap this guy up in as many is-he-Sauron things as possible. Um, So I have to admit, I am the kind who would speculate wildly. I already have many crazy conspiracy theories about this (laughs) show. Um, But I was taken out because I... I spent much of my early childhood being made fun of by being called manure, and all I heard was mana, ur, oh, mana, no. ur. So it was basically just like all that first grade psychic damage uh, being uh, basically thrown back at
1: me. Oh, that's so, awful.
0: Um, anything else you want to say about Nori, uh, the Harfoots, or the stranger at this point?
1: Mm, not really. Not really. We'll, we'll <laughs> Sorry, have time. We, late, we have but, ten, but, you know.
0: We have 10 episodes. So we'll, or <laughs> yeah. we'll, we have several weeks to get out all our thoughts. And this one is obviously going to be one of the slower percolating storylines. They even had some like comedy fun with it, like putting the guy in the card and the card going yeah. down the hill. Like that's very like Mary and Pippin to me. So, yep. again, I think the Harfoot stuff is overall the stuff that's working best for me. Um, and I that's probably if the show ends up being a success for me, I think that might be a big reason why. Um, before we circle back to our uh, circle into our spoiler section, I do want to circle back to uh, Disa and Elrond real quick, just because there was one Peter Jackson um uh, parallel I picked up between the two. And is the way that Elrond enters Doran and Disa's home, it's very much like Gandalf meeting Dobo yeah. at <laughs> the beginning of fellowship. We see Elrond ducking under all these little like you know, rafters that are just way too low for a man of his size, the way Disa gives him a big giant hug, the way the tone is just a lot lighter and more fun. um, It very much feels like the same Gandalf and Bilbo introduction we got at the beginning of Fellowship. So we're going to go into our uh, spoiler section after this musical break. We are going to play our token token music. So if this is uh, where you're going to bounce because you don't want to hear about speculation for the future, um, thank you for listening. Uh, please sign up for my brother, my captain, my podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash And now we will go into our spoiler section. Okay, so now, once again, you are in somewhat of a spoilery section where we will hypothesize based on books or things we might expect later on in the season. Um, Emily, you have Celeborn here. What do you want to say about Celeborn?
1: Oh, I have Celeborn with a sad face because Celeborn is not here. Um, And it makes me very sad that Celeborn is not here because I think this is a case when um, like Wags or... Habs, well, wives and girlfriends or husbands and boyfriends or partners generally of important characters uh, who are themselves not necessarily as like heralded or kind of kicked to the curb. uh, And... Galadriel, who would have been married by now, is not married. Caliborn is nowhere to be seen. So I suspect that there may be... God, I really hope this is true because I do quite like Celeborn. Um, I uh, suspect that there may be some sort of thread that is leading Galadriel to Caliborn in one way or another. And that maybe he is going to act as a sort of bastard version of, uh, 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 of Faramir uh, to uh, Galadriel's Aowen. Um, okay. Which is to say that like Galadriel is on this sort of death march of her own right now where um, inevitably the only person who is really going to be hurt um, is, is going to be her. Uh, she is doing this alone and you can't do a war like this alone. Uh, and there is going to need to be someone who is going to have to, not going to have to, but going to like need to be her friend um, and need to be someone who she can trust and rely on, who can bring her away from the self-destructive path. Um, I can't imagine it's going to be Elrond. Um, so I think Celeborn might be someone who's going to come in over the next couple, God, I hope, uh, seasons or hopefully episodes, uh, and be that kind of, um, you know, steady hand figure who is able to kind of recognize the validity of, of, of Galadriel's like horrific anger, horrific and justified anger, and say effectively what Faramir says to, to Eowyn and the Houses of the Healing, death may come to us all, but you're not going to go fucking do it when you've got a broken arm, so let's chill together, and then when the time comes to do this, we will do it right, and we will do it together. Um, And I think that that might be coming just based off of the way that they've set Galadriel up so far.
0: And I just want to say, I think they're just doing another homage to Peter Jackson's films by not having Celeborn in there at all. (laughs) Uh, uh, So um, I wanted to ask you something about Finrod and his death, Mm. um, because... uh, maybe I just picked this up from a podcast and it's wrong. Um, but was he killed by wolves at all?
1: Um, no. So, sorry. (laughs) So, so uh, wolves is kind of an interesting thing. And, uh, and, 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 Jeez, uh, in the legendarium, because I don't think you can think of them as like wolves. Basically, what I'm reacting to here is like, yes, Fenrir was killed by wolves, but it's not as lame as it sounds. <laughs> like, um, Wolves and wargs are interchangeable because Tolkien's wolves are the wolves of Norse, myth- Norse mythology, which we are like to our minds are more commonly known as uh, wargs. Uh, however, in the Silmarillion, there's also the presence of something uh, that like... Tolkien labels as werewolves, but may not necessarily be the sort of like uh, uh, werewolves of London <laughs> that we are all <laughs> thinking. Uh, it's something a bit more kind of powered up by that and not necessarily with a human element, but a, a sort of uh, shapeshifter uh wolf warg type element uh yes uh, uh was killed uh by wolves uh by a wolf uh while he was fighting alongside baron and Calamon, who you will probably know from baron and luthien who is a man uh and yes yes Fenrod was killed by wolves but it's cooler okay. than that
0: <laughs> okay um this isn't a theory or anything but i know later in the season we're going to see aaron deer fighting wolves it looks like he uh, we talked about this in one of our trailer previews i believe um, we see him possibly enslaved or at least captured as a prisoner. Um, and then he's appears to be fighting some wolves. So, um, I don't know why I'm trying to draw a Finrod Aaron deer connection here, but I, when I talk about like comic book movie adaptation, sometimes you just take a thing that happened to one character and put another character in the scenario just to say, Hey, yeah. we adapted a thing. Um, just because, you know, I wanted to do this thing, but I didn't have the rights to it or that character is not in my movie, but I really, yeah. this was a moment that meant a lot to me. So I wonder if any kind of interpretation of Finrod's death might make its way in that scene we're going to get with Aaron later.
1: Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And, and not just that, but um, Agnor and um, and and uh, Angrod, who are Gladriel's two other brothers, uh, are not present in this so far. We've seen no mention of them. But but Agnor in particular... And it's important because um, because of the story of Egnor and Andreth. and Egnor is obviously because he's Gladiel's uh, brother. He is an elf. He is a high elf. He is an older elf, um, and he falls in love with a woman named Andreth. Uh, and and she is she is a human woman, um, and they have this just absolutely heart wrenching romance where. She never marries again because, well, not again. She never marries um, because she she loves Egnor and and Egnor is like we can't be married because it, it would be cruel to either of us. Uh, and you should go on and you should find happiness in your life. Uh, and and that is what you deserve. And we can never be together forever. So uh, let's not do this this pain to ourselves. But but she she never marries. Um, and, and she she grows old uh, and she does die, um, but she spends her life as a wise woman um, and earns herself the epithet Selend, which in Sindarin means wise woman. <laughs> and I think there is potentially an echo of that, maybe, in what's going on with Bronwyn and Arendir. Um, because we've seen that Bronwyn is a healer of some sort, a wise woman, you might say, of some sort. Um, and so maybe they are going to squish Fenrod and Agnor together into one character and kind of push some of his character traits into Arendir.
0: All right. And then uh, the last thing is, so if you listen to our preview episode, I had my Into the Utter Westworld theory which is basically <laughs> that Sauron is going to be one of our characters hiding in plain sight. Um, and um, there was some fun theorizing that this might end up being Halbrind, um, the guy who saves Galadriel, which of course is going to add a level of dramatic irony that, hey, they were stranded on a little ship together. Here is like the target of all of Galadriel's you know mission. Um, and she doesn't even realize it. Um, and then... I don't know what else to make of it, but uh, there there are some very telling lines where he says like looks cannot or looks can be deceiving. He basically says something like that, and we're thinking of that famous uh, like Aragorn saying what what seems fair is foul or the other way. You, you know the line. I hope. Yeah. Um, we're two hours into this. You you have to just let me have my brain melt at this point. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's a very interesting theory. Um, obviously, it looks like they're about to be saved by Numenoreans and being taken to Numenor. Um, so that would, you know, kind of line up possibly. Um, I know uh, Sauron was taken to Numenor as a prisoner at first. Um, and then he eventually wormed his way into the court of the king. But this could be a different way to take it. Um, any thoughts on that, or do you have any other people on your secret Sauron watch?
1: I think Nori is Sauron. Um, no. Uh, to be honest, I think like I like your theory a lot. I think it's probably the accurate one. I'm holding out hope that Sarah just straight up does not show up at all this season until the very end, and then just wanders in, fully named Anatar, and we just have to go with it. Like, uh, we just have to go with it. We just have to let it happen. Um, I I suspect that like you are probably. You have probably nailed it that that we are going to find Sauron on a ship somewhere, uh, and and this is how he's going to be introduced to the plotline. Um, but I would fucking love it if they just did something like totally out of pocket with it, um, and I think that would kind of be the way to win to win me back by just going balls to the walls. And um, I otherwise don't really have any kind of thoughts because I think this has diverged so like thoroughly from what I know and I'm not a particularly creative person so I'm just kind of nodding my head going yes this makes sense fine (laughs) see this
0: is what happens when you are a
1: big fan of a fantasy series where the last
0: two books aren't out yet and have not been out for the last like 12 (laughs) years so we have the whole fandom literally just sits here and takes as much little evidence as we have and tries to figure out what's going to happen in the last two books. So um, (sighs) that's why my brain seems more wired to these like theories and predictions. Um, I want to make it clear. I'm not someone who gets like hung up on my own theories. Like if everything I say turns out to be wrong, I don't care. And I'm not going to be judging the quality of stuff, whether it hues to what I expect or not. Um, But it just, once you spend enough time in the song of ice and fire fandom, it's, it happens. Yeah, Um, that's fair. So if I want to go, like, absolutely out there with a secret Sauron watch candidate, I would say Bronwyn. Um, a, because, nice. you know, she's a woman. Uh, I think everyone's expecting this character to be a man. Um, it would also be funny if just, like, her whole thing to get her village to move out was, like, eh, it was a lot of work killing everyone in that nearby village. If we just got everyone to leave on their <laughs> own terms, that would just save I us a lot of work.
1: them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? What's the easiest way to evict all these people? Because, you know, I could imagine Sauron as a landlord. I think that's like a very (laughs) apt analogy. So um, I I don't think Bronwyn is Sauron. But I think think this first season is very much going to play the mystery of who is Sauron amongst our cast. And because of that, I'm going to do this like who is Sauron segment every time in our little (laughs) spoiler section. So fucking A. Anything else you want to say at the two hour and 10 mark? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: I do not. I really don't. Um, I, I think the kind of only thing that I am going to be interested in that we haven't really seen so far is how they're going to handle the connection between the Numenoreans and the elves. Um, and that's going to come next episode, presumably when we see, uh, Numenor for the first time, but that connection is really important because the degradation of that connection is also really important. So I am kind of waiting on tenterhooks to see how that goes.
0: Yes. Uh, only time I'll say this, thank you, Jeff Bezos, for also not introducing Numenor in these first two episodes, because then this, <laughs> this episode might push four hours if we had to talk about all that as well as all the stuff we have. So before we wrap up today, we want to shout out some of our patrons, as is Commiserate with one of our Patreon bonuses, our $10 patrons who will, who are given Elvin or some sort of a Middle Earth name will be read out every episode. And we will rotate reading out the names from our $5 patrons this week. So we would like to thank the following $10 patrons.
1: Matt Abbott, also known as Aranwo Minyatar, and Maddie Hugh, also known as Ithrenor of Kolkartad.
0: And I want to shout out Ed the Revelator, who is the silent spider. Guardian of Kirith Ungol, and Johnny Flores, Lothinaman of Palinque. Palinka, sorry. I will work on my pronunciations as we go forward. <laughs> and this week we would like to shout out to $5 patrons. First, Sean, the Rascal of Rivendale.
1: And Belegir of Dorloth, also known as <laughs> Gabagoul.
0: <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my, brother, my, captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro mycat my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybro pod where you'll get early access to episodes, including this one, and access to special bonus content. And I really should have said this stuff all up top, but during the rings of power please send us emails or leave us comments on our Patreon posts, or even better, join us in the discord and tell Emily why she's wrong for not loving this. Show. <laughs> uh, and with that, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers, and A Song of Ice and Fire, and House of the Dragon over at Nodacast ASOIAF. IAF. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm Emily, also known as our tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, like Galadriel, refusing to admit that I am wrong. Toasting a
0: pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. And Stephen, I'm so sorry we gave you a two-hour <laughs> episode this time. <laughs> Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.